What's up, guys? If you're on Spotify right now, please follow the show so that you don't miss any future episodes and leave a five-star review. Thank you. The first time he looked into the eye of a whale, it's a crazy story. He felt that the whale could see exactly through him. It was a moment where whales were being chased by an Icelandic or a Norwegian whaler, and they shot the mother so that the bulls would come to her rescue. And that bull, as it was going to be chased, looked into Paul and his crew on a small zodiac. It knew the difference between the whalers and Paul, and it looked with its one eye into Paul with complete pity. What are you, what are you doing? What is your species doing? Dr. X of the X-Men of conservation <laughs> oh, around the world. And that is one hell of a title for somebody. How did you become the Dr. X? Uh, conservation is something that's, I think it's super underfunded. It's super urgent. This is the decade of action is me, Paul, others. And uh, I think everyone in the world is realizing. Uh, so you got to step up. I mean, I think that everybody in their own capacity, whatever resources, whatever experience, knowledge, uh, and if it's Dr. X for me, I mean, <laughs> I'll take the nomination and I'll, I'll try to fulfill it, you know? Yeah, but you're, you're also somebody who's like spending their life paying it forward. I love guys like you because we'll get into your background and everything, yeah. but you built this unbelievable company, public company, worked your ass off for basically like 20 years yeah. and then stepped on to, is it executive chairman? Is that yeah, right? yeah. Okay, so you're no longer CEO. But in the past few years, you started Age of Union mm -hmm. to fund the things that you've been passionate about with wildlife and conservation and nature-related causes around the world. But what was your first like exposure as a kid, I'm guessing, that, that got you into things like that? So I grew up in in Richmond, B.C. It's a beautiful, natural setting. My, my parents are refugees from Africa. Mm. Uh, they came over in the 70s and... Uh, I was born in, the, in, this, in this place that just had so much natural beauty. Uh, and of course, being refugees, we did the, the camping, the, you know, the outdoor sort of inexpensive kind of activities. Uh, and I, you, know, you grew up in a place like that and you become a naturalist. As I became a teenager, there was something that uh, was in the, in the news called the War in the Woods. Mm. Uh, there was massive clear cutting of old growth forest. Uh, I'd grown up being one of these kids that read all about animals, uh, about uh, um, forests around the world, or about all sorts of nature, watched all those shows. It was horrifying to me to see something in my own backyard, to see thousand-year-old trees being just, you know, clear-cut for, yeah. for miles. And so I joined the, the, the protest at age 17. Oh, wow. Me and my stepbrother went, took our Mustang, and we, <laughs> and we drove to the far reach of Vancouver Island, and joined the protest, and we won the pro like this protest won uh, the preservation of this huge area, and it's now a national park. And I returned to it and uh, realized what we were able to accomplish as uh, as this ragtag group of, of protesters from all over the, the the country and all over the world. It became an international outcry. How many people showed up for it? I would say several tens of thousands eventually. Oh wow! But but also hundreds were arrested. 
Mm. Uh, Zipporah Berman, who led it, she was only 23. She got thrown into it as the leaders who started were, were arrested. She became this international figure. We're actually going to be launching a project with her to protect the remaining old growth um, oh, in wow. BC. In, 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 we'll be announcing it soon. So I actually got to meet her this year. But what turned me into a conservationist was that drive in that dirty Mustang from my home in Richmond to Clockwood Sound. I drove through hours and hours of clear-cut moonscape. Mm -hmm. And to see what we're capable of on such a massive industrial scale in, in, a, in a first world country like Canada, uh, it just never leaves you to see that kind of you know, abject, that kind of just utter destruction. Uh, I had a friend that just came back from uh, from Borneo that uh, visited one of our projects, Callowate, which we we might talk about, um, you know, later in the conversation. And she saw the same thing. Where's Callowate? Callowate is in Borneo, in Indonesia, mm. and and uh, our Dulan Forest Reserve is an island surrounded by palm plantations and all these these kinds of plantations that are extincting orang orangutans and other other species. But when you see that, when you see just habitats destroyed for miles and miles and miles it affects you yes and i knew that uh i'd started computers as a sort of a, a nerdy teen at 13 i knew i was going to have a career there but i knew i'd come back to conservation i knew that that was something deep in me that when i had the resources when i had the the money when i had the knowledge and the experience and maybe the wisdom that that would be something that would become a, a big part of what i wanted to do with my life. Well, it's great you did come back around to that, but it's also like kind of paradoxical in a way too sometimes when you think of the stereotype because it's yeah. like you're working with computers, you're inside all the time, right. you're behind the screen, <laughs> you're like new tech, yeah. all that stuff, but you were so interested in the nature and, right. and you were affected by seeing what we're capable of doing to it. What's this guy doing in the outdoors, which is probably what Paul Rosley's reaction was <laughs> to me when I... <laughs> Probably. We, we got to the Amazon. He's <laughs> probably like, all right, who the fuck is this guy? That poor dude. <laughs> he I, tortured me. <laughs> I got I got to tell you, though, I really appreciate yeah. you partnering up with, with Paul and, and helping give him the the light that, that he deserves after doing this for so many years, man. Because when, when I first met him last year... On the outskirts of Manu National Park, this guy, local guy, started going into the jungle and like leaving them piles of bananas because they're they're hunter gatherers. They don't have they don't have metal. They missed out on the wheel. They've never held a spoon. These are people that are out there. And so he'd leave them a machete and some bananas, and they'd come take it. And then after like a year, he would start being there when they came to take it. And then after some time, he was actually able to interact with them. And he couldn't he could only speak a few words of their language. This what do they speak? They're called the Mashkupiro tribe, and so they speak some sort of uh, some dialect of the Yine language but this guy who was interacting with them one day they found him they call it porcupine arrows sticking up out of his body like several arrows we don't know why they killed him i was telling you a bit off camera but you know he just looked exhausted mm -hmm. not exhausted like oh i can't do this anymore exhausted from just like how many times am i going to tell people yeah in america and in other countries right. around the world what's happening down here why it's important yeah. and how many times are they going to go oh that's terrible and then not do fuck all about it right. so it's nice to see that you got your hands dirty too and yeah. went down there and, and actually started doing something about that which not to jump around but how, how did you meet paul like how did you come across him well, Paul's got a very um, alluring uh, Instagram to for, to women. So we've so one of my one of the the, the um, my early 
team members at Age of Union uh, found his Instagram, and we were we were Age of Union started as a book in 2019, um, and that became a conservation project as I transitioned from uh, from CEO to. Uh, to executive chairman, and I could do full time conservation. And so, what we were doing is with the book, we wanted to do an uh, e an ebook and a free pot sorry a free audiobook. And to promote that during COVID, we wanted to have on change makers in conservation. And I didn't know it at the time, but those those people that we had on that that those Instagram lives became our initial projects. So, oh, wow. with Age of Union, I put forty million dollars into the the fund um, from my own money and found 10 projects around the world that were on the ground change makers that would inspire everybody to, sh to, to see regular people say, I'm not going to let this forest go down on my watch, or I'm not going to let this species go extinct. And it's really their stories that for us, the work is important. The, 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 the forests are important. The species are important, but it's, it's those, those human stories that I think, will ignite something in other people, you know, Paul is, is one of those people that, that you realize I can be a change maker in my own way, the way that he is. Maybe I'm not going to do it the same way, you know, Mr. Tarzan's doing it, but I'm going to do it with, with my talents and my, my set of abilities and my social reach and, and my, um, my experience, you know, so that's, that's what I think we want out of, out of those projects. And I realize that it's these on the ground very locally led. Uh, most of them are indigenous led or locally led. They're they're the ones that are actually doing the work that matters. You know, it's not these international nonprofits that are fundraising machines and know how to throw a gala. It's these organizations that have no budget because they're often locally registered in their in the country. And so, if I'm a U.S. or Canadian citizen, I don't won't get a tax receipt from mm. investing in Paul's. Uh, organization. Well, now they're a bit more set up. So we had to do all these extra steps that nobody's usually willing to do. And then the other thing that I thought was really important, because me coming from a software background or computer background, I don't know anything fuck all about conservation. Uh, I felt it was really important to go there myself. Mm. So of the eight of the 10 projects, I've been to eight. You know, and so it's really important to see, even though I've been to Congo, which is a tropical rainforest, just like uh, the Peruvian Amazon where Paul is, the social, economic, um, political situations are completely different. The threats are different. The timelines are different. What what will connect with the with like what the local strategy is, is completely different. So you don't really know that from a proposal. Can you actually explain that, if you don't mind? You're yeah. just bringing up so many things I'm interested in here. So if we're jumping, I'm sorry. But like, yeah. what do you mean, you know, we tend to have this American-centric kind of thought or even right. first-world-centric thought where yeah. everything is either a clusterfuck or it's first world, right? But when you're talking about some places like deep in the Amazon where it's yeah. literally like no laws. And then you're talking about the Congo, which I'm not sure how similar it is in that respect, but you're talking about places that have a lot of poverty and yeah. that where you have multinationals coming in and knocking shit down mm -hmm. and, and taking away these people's lands. Like how, what makes them so different as you just described it? So what's similar about them is the, the importance of those, of those big tropical blocks of, of, of rainforest, right? So there's the, there's the three big ones, right? The, the, the first is the Amazon. That's the first lung of the planet. Then there's the, the Congo Basin, uh, in D mostly in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. And then the third one is Indonesia. Um, 
and these are these are like highly under threat. The fourth one's Madagascar. That's almost been cleared. Mm. You know, there's there's remnants left of that one. So it's really important for <coughs> for those to have focus. Uh, what what you see in these is there these are country. There's a there's a lot of uh, fast development happening in these countries. There's there's lots of opportunity in terms of the mineral wealth, in terms of the the, the timber, in terms of extraction. You know, and that's that's the challenge is. A lot of these governments want to lift their people out of poverty, um, but the shortcut ways to do that, uh, where you can do it only once by uh, extracting the extracting everything out of the forest, destroying nature, is not going to benefit people long term. So, right. how do we propose other ways, or or how do local initiatives that that know how to do something in a different way, how do those get more? Uh, how do those beat the extractive uh, forces? To the punch. That's, and how do they do that? The only way to pr protect any of these places, there, there's there's a there's the way that has been done in the past. that's often called fortress conservation. So that's when Westerners come in and you know put a big wall around uh, an area of uh, a forest. You know, people often think, oh, I'm just going to buy some of the Amazon and protect it. It doesn't work like that. That's that's one of the first things you learn when you when you go down to these places. You can't just come in as a savior and just buy something and then put a wall around it. That's what the Belgians did in Congo. Mm. Uh, and it, it, it was, it was sort of, it, it, at times it's been important when a species is on a, on its last legs, like the gorilla were in, uh, in Congo, but what, how you have conservation be a long-term success is make sure that it's a benefit to everybody that, that, uh, that depends on the area. So that looks different in, in Congo than it does in the Peruvian Amazon. Uh, and the the dynamics in terms of, of how politically the government regards uh these 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 efforts, it's it's very it's as different as Africa is from South America, you know. So yeah. And is that because I'm just trying to picture it from my seat here from the little bit I know, is that because like in the Amazon you literally have them you have indigenous people out in the middle and even if it's within country borders throughout it, like they can't even get to a lot of these places. Whereas in the Congo, the government's more involved in the entire place, or is that also not very reachable certain aspects of their rainforest? Yeah. A lot of it's, a lot of it's remote. So in, in the, in the Congo, there's not much mechanized anything in terms of extraction. So there's a lot of opportunity to protect things in the Congo. The, also the attitude towards the nature the natural bounty of the country, especially in DRC, there's a real reverence uh, towards mm. the animals, towards the forest. Uh, there's a real willingness to integrate the long-term future of, of the forest and, and its species with their future. So we have like a film coming out this fall called The Corridor. So we're, of our 10 projects, we're doing little films on, on a lot of them just to tell the stories. And so there's a really interesting locally led project that we're, we're documenting called Str Strong Roots Congo. This this man Dominic Bikaba and his and his uh, and his amazing team, mostly of women. And and what their strategy is is all of these community projects. A lot of them focused around women, uh, that because they're, they're sort of the heart of 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 what happens in terms of the uh, the villages. Mm. So by uplifting them and giving them economic opportunities like replanting trees in areas that have been cut, uh, giving them 
because the men get all the choice jobs, right? So what what do they have uh, to bring money into their family and to and to economically, uh, you know, progress them? A tree can grow in seven years in Congo. That's how how nutrient rich and how great of an environment it is to grow something. So you see things popping up because of the efforts of Strong Roots Congo and because of the opportunities that have been given in different in different ways, microcredits and all of these different ways to interact. And then what happens is because as these 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 villages are going to grow from you know 100 million to 170 million over the next over the next decade, it's a huge increase. If we can have these villages be self-sufficient, they will not have to go into the protected areas to cut wood and impact the gorillas. Wait, so, but, 100 million to 170 million? Yeah, it's it's some crazy number. Uh, that, that You're talking almost, people? Yeah. Right on the border, and a lot of these, these areas of growth are right on the border of where Kahuzi Biega and other national parks in Congo are. These are the last refuge of some of these some of these species. So if you if you give them economic opportunity and have them be self-sufficient in their in their areas and that's what the programs are designed to do then then they then they they're happy to uh to leave the nature reserves in 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 place because they'll get overrun. Um that's one of the the main challenges in these developing nations is as more wealth comes into the country the population's exploding uh there's more there's more demands on the land. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that that's that's the real the real challenge. I think in in the Amazon, there's much more impact from from North America, from uh, from 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 underground and illegal forces. Uh, the illegal gold mining is something that's just a horrific first yeah. w- way to come in and destroy. And then once that people think it's it's being logged and deforested, it's first being poisoned with illegal mining. You know, a factory boat, and actually not just one, like 10 will go down the river. What they'll do is they'll scoop up river sediment, suck it in, mix it with mercury Mm. to find the gold, and then dump it back into the river. So everything behind the boats just dies. And then after that happens, and everybody locally is poisoned with mercury, and the fish is all poisoned with mercury, then the loggers come in because everybody's (laughs) gone. And then, you know, the the poaching so all of that so that's a different situation than the congo there's there's different realities there's just different threats you know that's and so what the, what what projects like jungle keepers are doing so you i told you a little bit about what strong roots congo is doing they're doing, they're doing microcredit loans they're doing pro- projects for for different members of the community to make sure that they've got they've got employment that they're productive jungle keepers which is our which is our reserve that paul rosley uh founded in the Peruvian Amazon, they've got a couple of of sustainable kinds of crops that you can grow in the forest. It's called agroforestry, uh, where you can where they have Brazil nuts. A Brazil nut tree can't grow without the surrounding forest. It requires mm. animals to, to to make sure that things are being seeded and, and pollinated. And then you've got ranger programs. We're funding Age of Union is funding a ranger program so that local and indigenous people from the area are being employed to protect the area and. The, the former there's former loggers and former poachers that are now in that ranger program. The kids of those loggers and poachers want to be a ranger when they grow up, because those activities don't really economically benefit the local people. Yeah. They end up with broken bodies, as Paul has probably shared with you. It's not a long term way to live, uh, and so there's we got to you got to illustrate new ways, uh, and these highways that they bring into the Amazon where. 
and Paul's probably talked about this too, and highway comes through yeah. and then you see all of these extraction activities happen. That's something that we haven't, you haven't seen as much in, uh, in the Congo, but it's, it's a way for, it's a way for it just to be a highway of things coming out, you know, yeah, huge I'm, logs, you know, animals. It's just, it's, it's sad. I'll put some of those videos in the corner. I know Paul actually recently mm-hmm. on his, I think on his subscribers channel has posted some content that some of it might've been public on his public Instagram as well. Yeah. But you know, he talks a lot about that choice you bring up, like what choice do some people have? And part yeah. of what jungle keepers does is they come in and say, well, yeah, here's some economic incentive to have a choice. And now you also are enlisting people to be guardians of their own homeland. Yeah. You know, I, Ryan Tate, Paul's buddy talks a ton about that. He had an amazing video a couple, nah, this was probably like five, six years ago where they had arrested some poachers in, in Africa and they brought him into the room and it was actually when some documentary cams were following them around. So you can see the video, but he started talking to the guys about how if they're killing the creatures that make their ecosystem incredible and and drive tourists and people to want to come here to see the beauty of what Africa has to offer, if they kill that, their kids are going to have nothing. Mm -hmm. Because they're like, you think it's bad right now, like, well, your kids are going to have nothing to sell here either. It's going to be a barren wasteland. And you can see, like, one of those guys ended up processing that whole thing and became a park ranger yeah as it turned out after you know being on the other side of it and to me like i have a lot of empathy for you know when people are they're just kind of stuck in trying to put food on their table yeah but if you can i I feel like not enough effort has been made to to go in and say okay well i'm an american maybe and i care a lot about this or you're a canadian you care a lot about this let's go in there and let's actually show them that we will put our money where our mouth is we yeah. care about this every bit as much as they do and then the you know it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy no yeah it's weird to say that in, for a fortis force to last it needs to be productive from our perspective from a from a local perspective for the local people because a forest is ultra productive especially in these places it's this bio, it's mega they call it mega mega diverse right mm. but it has to be economically important to the local people so that that area votes its interest to to the government if the if if those people are happy with how it's how the model works and we can and there's a if there's a a model that protects the local environment, that's what the government will do for that area. You know, mm-hmm. so it needs to work and the models might be end up being different because of the situation in these different places. But that's why these local grassroots projects that we've been searching for around the world are the, the answer because they map out they map out the models that are that can be replicated everywhere. You know, we're not gonna save the Amazon just with jungle keepers and with the strong roots project, but if everybody's copying it and that's happening in the Congo, when we, there's this forest land title designation that, uh, that we've, that, that strong roots has kind of invented with the government that in a government framework that lets everybody sort of apply for this kind of forest land title. So it's mixed. So there's village, but there's also forest corridor for animals. So now everybody wants this title. And if everybody gets this title in the surrounding area, that's really going to protect the ability for animals to move and for force to be there long-term. And why do they want this title? Because when illegal miners come in from foreign countries, they can kick them out and they have a, they have a Mm. land title. So that's a model 
with all of the other supporting things that Strong Roots is putting in place, that's a model that everybody wants to copy. Then you don't have to do any work. Everybody is trying to get in on it. When we were doing the forest land title mapping on a floor in a town hall in a village in, in DRC, there was chieftains and, and local kings and queens coming and, and, and we're asking, can we be next? That's the kind of that's the kind of leadership that uh, the Dominic and his team, and that's the that's the the heart of the movie that we're putting out this fall, the corridor. It's not a uh, it's it's not your typical movie about the environment, which is what will happen next. This is a success story. Mm. They have a model that should inspire people to create models like this elsewhere. Whoever thought DRC, with all its political instability and wars, there was a war breaking out when we were, while we were there, actually, between DRC and Rwanda. Whoever thought that a model like this would come out of DRC? You know, it, it's innovation around around sustainable, a sustainable solution that they could borrow in the Amazon, they could borrow uh, in Indonesia. Uh, and so by being on the ground, and I'll admit... I didn't understand the project of Congo. I was, I was like, I know they're doing good stuff. University of Toronto supporting it. Dr. Kerry Bowman, uh, the professor that uh, that asked me to start supporting it, is incredible. So I just we put money towards it. But when when I was on the ground, I, was, I really came into focus of what was mm. actually happening there and how special it was. So it has to be economically. The area has to be economically important to people. It has to be productive in, in, from a human context. Or it's never going to it's never going to be saved. What is I mean? You talked a little bit there about getting the recommendation from a professor that that you respect, but I would imagine a guy like you has all kinds of organizations around the world hitting you up, asking you to come in and save the day. And even with someone with all your money, you gotta you gotta pick the you gotta pick the horses you're gonna ride. Like what what are you looking for when different organizations come to you or you identify some organizations that you like like why what makes them stand apart yeah so it's definitely that there's that change maker uh protagonist that person that mm. that that is going to it's going to light something in going to light that spark in people when they hear the story mm. uh that's I think really that's really important. Uh, it could be even just a biologist, uh, or it could be somebody that fist fought poachers on the beach, like Suzanne Lacan Batiste did when people were fo- poaching men were poaching leatherback turtle mothers coming up to nest. She did that thirty years ago, and thirty years later, those young men are are on her team. They're on her ranger wow. team now, and she would not let um, that butchering and massacre happen uh, every nesting season. She just grew up in Matura Beach in Trinidad and, and was like, no. Our, actually, our team just came back from Trinidad. We're doing a short film on that as well. Those a are, lot of films. We it. have a ton. <laughs> so that's the story that needs to get out there. So that's the storytelling potential. Obviously, the work is important. We've tried to pick our first 10 uh, to represent the three big big forests. So there's jungle keepers in the proven Amazon. There's there's Calloweight in the the Indonesian uh, Dulan forest, and then there's strong roots in in Congo and DRC. Then we've got we're from Canada, so two in Quebec. Uh, there's the Saint Lawrence River, which there's lots to say about how important that ecosystem is. Huge ecosystem. Uh, so there's that, and then there's uh, another big reserve in Quebec called Canuck, uh, which is a former king's domain from France. 
Uh, so that's why it's a huge protected zone. Two in BC, where I, where I was born. I live in Montreal now in, in Quebec, so that's important to me. But BC has some of the most wild nature. I went from that Congo shoot all the way to BC. It couldn't be more different. But I was like, wow, our BC nature is just so world-class. I was up in the, the glacial rivers in the Pitt River where we're channeling water back into streams that animals are still trying to use, uh, but that have been just kind of decimated by the logging that's happened around it but we can channel the water back and that whole ecosystem will come back to life there's another one that we're working, working on in bc which is an eagle sanctuary which is all subdivisions all around but tens of thousands of eagles come through there every year and it's a stop and if mm -hmm. we just make another development that's it for their migration route so it was super critical and then, of course, there's two two in the uh, in the Caribbean. There's one in Haiti, which is a bit humanitarian, because, but also reforestation. And then there's the the leatherback turtle one in Trinidad. And then finally, the ship we have with Sea Shepherd, which is, which is incredible. That that the Age of Union ship, is, one of my favorites because it shows, what has to happen on the ocean. We can't just talk about forests and and uh, and protect and and sort of turtles and and uh eagles we've got to look at what's happening to the the our ocean it's it's crazy what happens when it's out of sight out of mind yes and you actually so with sea shepherd captain paul watson yeah. the legendary greenpeace activist right. and everything had been in charge of that until recently now he has his own organization right and we you, support both yes so you're you maintain a friendship with both but you guys had made a documentary. What was it called? Caught. Yeah. Last year was that. That's our most. Re that's our most recent uh, short doc. Yeah. Yeah. So this documentary was basically like a lot of it an undercover investigation shoot mm -hmm. out in the Mediterranean where you guys coast of France. Yeah. yeah. Where you successfully got the law changed because of what they were doing to dolphin. So yeah, it's crazy what's been happening. So 10,000 dolphins are ending up in the French fishing nets every year. I mean, 10, at that rate, you're going to have an extinction of dolphins in, in that area. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no doubt. When, when you say fishing net, just to be clear right now, obviously everyone knows what a fishing net is. But I think right away, like a cynic who's not aware of the situation goes, well, what are fishermen supposed to do? And why is it a yeah. problem that dolphins are getting in there? So can you explain that whole yeah, ecosystem? Explain. So there's it's, – it's, it's sort of – What's happening out in the Atlantic in that area is sort of multifaceted. So I'll take you through it really quickly. Huge trawlers are coming through the area. It's not all France's fault. So huge trawlers are coming through the area from other European nations like the Netherlands. There's huge Dutch trawlers all over the place. Massive trawlers coming in from Asia, China and other nations. And what they'll do is they'll have miles and miles long drift nets and they'll scoop everything out of the sea. So what do the dolphins do? The dolphins come closer to the French coast than they ever had to because there's no fish out there. Uh, and so when they now when they reach the French coast, the artisanal local fishermen that also have drift nets, but not as massive as a trawler, they also have drift nets. And when they pull up the fish, now the dolphins and the French fishermen are now competing for the same fish yeah. that the right. So so that's the challenge. And now they're colliding. And so the French fishermen were never catching dolphin before this this was all happening with what's happening in the high seas because there's less and less fish overall. So these these trawlers are coming anywhere in the high seas that you can. And the high seas, for people that don't know it, is everything beyond 15 kilometers off a coast is basically the high seas, which is 
open to everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's just a wild, it's a wild west of, of, uh, of crimes against nature, essentially. So, so the, the, so now the dolphins are colliding with the French fishing fleet and they're being pulled up. And what happens is, uh, they call it the agony of the deep. Basically as they're being pulled up, their lungs explode because they're, they, they, they can't get out of the net and the, the, the air and, and everything, it just, they die, right? They, and they die in the most horrible way in these nets. Mm. And because they're mammals, they end up floating. So all the rest of it that gets thrown back or, or doesn't uh, end, up, end up being taken or is killed, a lot of seabirds die in, in, this, in, in these nets as well. A lot of that just falls to the ocean floor, but the dolphins wash up. And mm. so there was one, the head of Sea Shepherd France, an incredible woman named Lamia Esamlali, said, and, and a real protege of Captain Paul, she said, I'm not letting this happen. You know, just like a lot of the other activists we've talked about, I'm not letting this happen on my watch. I know that the French people don't even know there's dolphins off sure. our coast. They don't. So she took the dead dolphins, as difficult as that is, to the foot of the Eiffel Tower, to the front of the National Assembly. And that's what we captured in our film. Um, she would do night raids on the on Zodiacs with, with her team to see these dolphins being pulled up. Um, and they would go for, our team went, uh, on, on one of her night raids. You're imagine being on a Zodiac for, from about like for 10 hours with your camera on, on a, on a, on a fixed on a boat for that one moment. And you might not get a dolphin every time in a net. And when you do see the dolphin, it's a horrible situation. So you're just sitting there waiting for something bad to happen to capture it on film. So you can show people, Yeah, you know, it's, but that's the kind of dedication that, that, that those folks have, you know? And so that we want to document their, their, their fight. So putting their, their campaign, um, Plus our uh, film, seven months later, the French court ordered the French government to change the law. So what can be done? You can put cameras on those fishing boats to, on the worst offending fishing boats to monitor so that they don't, they're putting nets down when they see dolphins, you know, like they don't need to be doing that. If there's dolphin in the area because they're chasing the same fish, don't put your nets down because the camera's watching. So there's, there's measures you can take. Um, so that there's less dolphin catch, and they're the recommendations of Sea Shepherd. There's a number of them. But if it's you were saying the 15 kilometers offshore, at the high seas, and I'm I'm forgetting now like how some of the international waters work. But right. how do they? If I'll put a, a a map of France in the corner of the screen right now for yeah. people to see, like of Europe, where you can see the coast of France and in between Africa and everything. Like in if you put your finger in the dead center. Yeah. Like, do they have any control over that? No, or it's no. only the stuff closer to their shore? Listen, this stuff happens all yeah. over the place in terms of bycatch. Bycatch is... I don't think people realize that when, when the drift net comes out of the, the water, 90% of that gets thrown away or, or mashed into meal. It's just yeah. crazy, right? That's what happens in the high sea. What, one of, the, one of the, the, the important discussions that's happening right now is a high seas treaty. Because what happens close to the shore, uh, in what happens close to the shore in terms of biodiversity, that has a shorter life cycle. That that uh, those fish have a shorter life cycle. The, what's in the high seas takes a long time to grow. Yes, it should be almost. There should be no fishing in the high seas. If you're going to fish, 
and there's almost no sustainable way to fish. But if people are going to fish, it should be artisanal, local fishing uh, of the of the of the of the stock that exists closer to the shore. What the Age of Union ship is doing right now, now that it's done in France, is it's it's helping West African nations with this trawler situation. So Sea Shepherd knows how to, because of all of its years of of, of disrupting whaling hunts, which they won that fight. So this is the hope, right? Because of what a small team did with Captain Paul and his team did over the course of 50 years, they stopped whaling. One person and his crew stopped whaling, which is a 400-year death march for whales to near extinction. Can we can we put a bookmark? I want to come back yeah. to that for sure so we can go details, but, but so, I just don't want you off the dolphin thing. Yeah, so so – so yes, yeah, so the dolphin thing—that's that—that's sort of the the end of that story in terms of we're we're now waiting to see how the government does interpret those uh, those those laws. Uh, but yeah, and what I was saying is on the west coast of Africa, we're working that what the ship is doing now is it's helping dispel trawlers so that the local because the local people that are that live in these African nations they have nothing to eat, so it's mm. easy for the government to support Sea Shepherd's work to dispel these trawlers and, and, and for the local coast, because Sea Shepherd can't carry guns. So the local Liberian Coast Guard or Gambian Coast Guard works with Sea Shepherd to repel these pirates and, and trawlers and so that the local people have a chance. And they don't fish on the same industrial level as as the uh, as, sure. as some of these larger vessels. But also, and I, I'm just circling back around to it because I'm trying to picture it all myself too. But yeah. like when you were talking about the difference between – with the France example with, with the dolphins, when you're talking about the difference between the, the high sea, deep sea trawlers right. and then the fact that that was them pushing the dolphins inland where they get caught by the French fishermen. Yeah. The laws that you're changing essentially then affect those – the way I understand it, it affects those French fishermen not yes. being able to put their nets as far – but oh no! It, it it really affects what they do inside the fifteen kilometers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Doesn't, so it, it doesn't affect the high seas. And so this, unfortunately. So now, not that that's not helping a lot because it is. But I'm putting myself in the shoes of a French fisherman now. Yeah. Who's frustrated that these dolphins are here in the first place? Right. And they're trying they to are. make a living. Yeah. Right. Now they're banned from doing that, and mm-hmm. we still have the problem out in the high seas. Mm-hmm. So maybe now the dolphins are going to be there, and more of them will survive. Yeah, and that's why it's good. That's why it's because good. they're not going to get caught yeah. in the nets inland. But it's kind of like the locals are getting fucked, and the international people from wherever the hell are they can still do what they want. Yes, you're right. How do we stop that? I think that the high seas treaty is important. I think that the marine protect. So there's an important directive got uh, UN directive got approved by 196 nations uh, this uh, this spring. It's called um, it's called 30 by 30. 30 percent of the world's land, but the important to this discussion is 30 percent of the world's oceans should be in marine protected areas by the year 2030. Uh, and so you've seen a lot of uh, of countries uh, start to already start to already uh, deliver on their commitment. So you're seeing marine protected areas, and we were talking earlier off camera about marine protected areas. One off the coast of Santa Cruz, when you have a marine protected area that doesn't allow fishing, you have regeneration of fish stocks. Yes. You have, but they aren't necessarily well patrolled yet. And the world has to get good at this. So another another uh, effort of the age of unions been Israel just uh, 
just designated the Pomerium Slide, which I visited with them with, with our ship. And that is a marine protected area in the Mediterranean where tuna has been 98% wiped out. And this Pomerium Slide has has the tuna net, like the, the nesting grounds, as well as some deep sea shark nesting grounds. Sharks have also been almost wiped out. Uh, and so it's important to have these specially designated, highly biodiverse MPAs, as they're called. And that can make a big difference. You know, when you when you look at the West Coast of Africa, when you look at the West Coast of Latin America, that's like the Amazon and the Congo of the ocean. So if mm. some of that can be, it's not all the same, right? The high seas is not all full of fish. It's a lot more along the coasts. And that's why it's actually easier to put a high seas treaty in because you, you have to expend a lot of fuel to cover and catch very little out in the high seas. It's a lot more along the coast. So if we can have the high seas be a safe zone for, for fish to regenerate and then have marine protected areas uh, closer to, to shore, I think we've got a framework that the, uh, the world has to agree on it. That's why this 30 by 30 is a big, is a big source of hope. Because if the world agrees to it, no country wants to do this on their own because other nations will come in and just take advantage of, the, of this situation, especially in the ocean, where there's no monitoring. Because if you've agreed to do all this stuff, but nobody else has, then yeah, you've got all the, the fish yeah. that everybody else, else is going to come in and take, like what's happening to France and what's yes. happening to the African nations. That's the really tough thing. And it's yeah. not just in the battle you're fighting. This is in a lot of different things we talk about around the world where – you can have all these nations with the best intentions. Yeah. You get 27 to 30 to agree, but three don't. Right. It's like, oh, well, I guess they're going to keep doing that. It's so difficult and, you know, not to go with the same the same people every time, but you look at the Russias, you look at the Chinas and stuff. Right. It's kind yeah. of par for the course when you look at bigger countries like that who don't really give a fuck about certain rights of yeah. certain environments or people or whatever it is, they're going to keep doing it. And right. it, and I just can't imagine, like, it's frustrating for me being some dude, you know, in an armchair here in a podcast talking with people like you about it or just talking with regular people about it, just saying, like, how do we fix this? But I can't imagine being in the middle of it because you're forced to play this kind of political dance if you will with all these different places and just get people to say yes regardless mm -hmm. of where they're from or what they're about and all it takes is like one or two people suddenly say no and you know get off the musical chairs and it can screw up everything you're working for absolutely absolutely and i think that's why and i don't want to get too much to climate change because it's a whole other discussion but no, we can go there but, sure. but that's that's why nobody wants to do anything because nobody's doing anything and it's hard to track who, who hasn't done enough you know or so I think it's actually really important to start with nature and to start with conservation. And I, one of the things I'd really like Age of Union to get out there in terms of thinking is conservation is the frontline fight against climate change. And it's the one thing that we can actually show people a success. It's very hard to make climate change a, a not abstract thing for people. It's mm. too abstract. People feel very powerless. It's about emissions levels. And, you know, like we, we don't see enough electric cars on, on the right. street to really ever have any much hope about that. But, but nature-based solutions, conservation plus climate smart grazing plus climate smart uh, uh, forestry, eight different categories of doing things differently just on land uh, is... 25 gigatons over the next decade that if we if we what do you mean 25 gigatons? gigatons of carbon 
Okay, got it. And a lot of countries, I know Canada is starting to actually really focus on this because it will buy us time to electrify, to to do some of the other kinds of strategies. If we do the nature-based easy stuff and relatively inexpensive stuff and the conservation zones and the marine protected zones are a key part of that, which is why I'm happy that 30 by 30 has come in because it's got all these countries hopefully rushing to protect 30% of land and, and marine by 2030. That buys us a lot of time on, on the climate uh, challenge. Maybe we'll have climate sequest- uh, carbon sequestration uh, you know, machines, or we'll have uh, more agreement on emissions reductions. But we need, we're obviously behind on that, on all of that. Yeah, so, I, I, on the tech and on on the on the agreement. So let let's like agree on the nature because the biodiversity is at risk. We're losing nature. I like this approach. I, I do too, and it's something I can show somebody something very real with Paul at Jungle Keepers, or with Dominic at, uh, at at in the Congo, or Susan in, in Trinidad. I can show people something they care about and can care about, and they can say, conservation is the frontline fight against climate change. Let's protect the planet and species, because that's what we're losing rapidly. And that, we know, is that frontline barrier. Yeah. it's This is another one that just frustrates the hell out of me, because... Like everything else, we politicize so many things. And yet so many people across the political spectrum live in parts of the world where they're in nature all the time. It's right. something a lot of us care about regardless mm-hmm. of, of where people stand. But then, yeah. you know, the terms come on to it and it's natural. Like mm-hmm. it's not anyone's fault. But, you know, the climate change, the climate crisis, global warming, we all yeah. say them. we've all been around this. It creates like this – officey feel to it sure so what you're talking about is also it's less it's more it's it's very similar to how paul talks about this i really like paul's approach because it's kind of the same thing but it's like let's let's not talk about the alarms of like scientific numbers and stuff Mm -hmm. so much as let's talk about the little things we can do in teams to fix things because the main thing i'm getting at here that's kind of the 500 pound elephant in the room is that a lot of these issues get rated by i'll just even say like corporate america but yeah corporate internationally where you know suddenly you get businesses who decide they can monetize Mm -hmm. these types of movements and they end up kind of doing the opposite i mean people could point to specific examples with like some of the esg stuff and everything and what ends up happening is once some of that gets exposed that like oh these these kind of i mean frankly you were from the corporate world. You know yeah. how some of these people are. They're not like sure. you in, in, in many cases. Many are, but many mm-hmm. aren't. You know, these guys will then hijack something and then once like the general public finds out like, oh, wait, no, that's bullshit. They're just trying to make <laughs> money or something. Guess what? Now they shut off their mind to all of it. Yeah. So if you come in with a different way like you're doing and you're saying, hey, here's like – just to use your example, here's 10 different things in different spots in the world that are within our nature that are kind of like these yeah. small little pieces of the fight that you can get involved. And by the way, these are living things. You right. can kind of relate to it in a way. You can see that. Well, that that's something that more people could be like, yeah, I, I fuck with that. I'll get behind that. You know? And if we could – if we – all got behind it we could do a thousand projects next year we could do yes ten thousand projects the year after then we have models being copied and replicated everywhere and we've got a real solution yeah 10 projects is not going to make a difference it's more of an example with with real benefits in in areas i mean paul's reserve is 250 square kilometers i know, I know we're in miles here but uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're in america wait, wait. i forgot <laughs> what does that mean 
but yeah, no, it's it's important, and I think it's important because it's material, and I think it's also important because there's real people behind it, and that's what makes something relatable. It's the opposite of the climate discussion, which is so abstract. You know, that is, I think, hard for people to to get their head around for sure. Yeah, it's it's not, you know, it, it's one of those things we kind of got to reset. Yeah, and. You know, look, you are working against time with certain things. Like we look at the rainforest example, which is one we've talked about a bunch today through through Paul. But, you know, one of the numbers he will talk about is how it's estimated that around 20% of the world's oxygen comes from the rainforest. So if we're – if we are going to get to a point of no return, like that quote-unquote extinction level below which yeah. you can't get back above, you're going to start to – deoxify you know the atmosphere around the world yeah. not just there in the amazon so when you can kind of you know pull people in america or in other places around the world and say look this is going to affect you too mm-hmm. and it's not just like oh here's a doomsday clock it's more like hey here's three four things we can do then y- you can change the narrative D- doom and gloom does not engage people it yeah. just doesn't that's why we won't ever talk in those terms. You know, I've had the privilege of, of spending time with some of my heroes lately, David Suzuki, Jane Goodall, Captain oh, wow. Paul Watson. Wow. And they're, they're, they're a generation that's got a level of respect where they do talk about the macro and they do need to scare our politicians and our world leaders. But when I speak to audiences and I talk to them about wins on the ground, I see the light come on in people's face. It doesn't come on when people talk about doom and gloom. Yes. It doesn't. And I think that the other thing, and you talk about politicization because it's a sad, it's unfortunate that climate change is kind of associated with Al Gore because people that, (laughs) people that don't support the Democrat or the liberal, they don't feel like it's their fight too. But do, do people on the other side of the, of that spectrum realize that, most of the national parks were created by Republican presidents. Mm. Do they do they realize that most of the conservation uh, has been done by people on their side of the spectrum? And sometimes it's the terms. You know, should should we be talking about wow. uh, climate change and and uh, carbon, or should we talk about pollution? You know, uh, Governor, um, former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger said something brilliant the other day about. He, he's like, why? Why aren't we talking about pollution? Pollution by carbon, it's something that's non, not on the spectrum. You know, uh, and respect people that live in in uh, in close to nature that they know something about it. Engage yes. them in conservation. Make sure this is everybody's fight. Fight on the social issues. Yeah. <laughs> but not about not about the baseline planet. Agreed. It's just it's just not any it's everybody's problem and everybody's solution. And it's it's something that actually could be a unifier in some ways. Yes. It's it's sort of it is the most urgent issue of the day. It's not got an endless clock on it it's the decade of action it's it's really really something we got to rally around we're not treating it like the world war ii like not that any of us remember that but i just spoke to a climate activist the other day he showed me what canada did for world war ii in terms of war measures and in a real emergency and then what did they do it did what every other country that was in nato did you know they built factories they mm. they created all sorts of cores of people to do all kinds of th- rally the whole country to build a force to fight uh, Nazi Germany and the and the axis we did that similar kind of emergency measures for covid different nations but we won't do it 
for the climate crisis, even though we have extreme weather and we have wildfires everywhere, we have major, we're kind of in that period before all of the countries got serious about World War II, where they're seeing all these tragedies happen in Europe, but nobody's really doing anything in North America. Yeah. Hopefully we're in that phase uh, our, the world's in that phase right now regarding climate change and that everybody will have at some point be like, okay, enough's enough. Everybody's on fire and everybody's flooding and we've got to do a war measures act across the planet. And hopefully the first part of that is conservation. It's getting that 30 by 30 done. And maybe it's not, maybe 30 is not enough in some places in, mm -hmm. in biodiverse areas like the Amazon and the Congo and the really rich parts of the ocean, it should be 80, 90%. And then other places, 90% conserved. Yeah. Because those are mega diverse. They're, they're literally, they literally should be subsidized by the rest of the world. Would you just from a, I guess like a first step perspective though, I understand where you're coming from with that. But if there's some people right there who go, okay, well that seems insurmountable. Would you start with 30 in a lot of these places and say, we're going to get somewhere from that? What I love is that some of these, some of these places are doing, let's get 25 by the year. 2025 mm. let's get the low hanging fruit because once you put a process in and you've got a flow and you've got a pipeline going it's easy then to get to 30 by 30 if you if you get to 25 by 25 and so you know for example in british columbia they're really gunning for it same with uh there's some provinces in in canada that are really going for this because they've got large tracts of, of land and and big areas that they can protect so they're going to knock off the things that are that are the easiest and start you know working with indigenous people for some of their territories to include them in, in the area if their plans are to protect those areas which is usually what their plan is so i think it's incremental like let's do small things yeah. let's do small things i think another thing that we don't consider enough is the thing that's right in front of us and it applies to everything but let's apply it to the example with you know climate and nature like we're talking right now and and that is what the internet has done to society you know a, a, an right. example i've given in the past is that when i go to the wawa i'll see the girl in green hair hold the door for the guy with the with the 82nd airborne hat you know who's <laughs> 75 years old and they yeah. smile say thank you and yeah. there's no worries and yet some of those same two types of people right are screaming at each other on online yeah. like they're not oh, people. I know this very well. So, people will not be – when people gather, they don't do what they do online. Exactly. So if yeah. you walk up – and I hope you don't walk up to something like this. But <laughs> if you walked up to you know, some big fire or something and the firemen weren't yeah. there yet, I guarantee you there's some people running up into that building. I guarantee you everyone's crowding around and they're all – even if there's people who aren't going to physically go do something about it right now, they're yeah. all – some of them are calling 911. Other, what is it in Canada? Is it yeah, it's, a... <laughs> it's also – okay. Make sure. But like you know, they're, they're calling 911. They're talking with each other. They're taking video of it so they can get the word out, whatever it is. All these different people, they go into problem-solving mode. Right. When you go online about these things, people have more of a separation from it and sure. the ability to process and say, what am I going to say that's now public that appeals to whatever my worldview appeals to because those are the people that are going to judge me on this. Yeah. And now you mm. ch you see what I'm saying? You change the impetus. Yeah. I guarantee you, not that this is possible, let's be real, but I guarantee you if you could just pick up everyone on a plane and go take them to see Paul or something, mm -hmm. oh, they'd all be behind it. Sure. You know, but – yeah. 
you're doing, I think, the next best thing by focusing on the art of it and trying to bring documentaries home and yeah. show people. You and I talked on the phone even about like artists going to some of these places, photographers going to some of these places and giving beautiful things for people to see like, hey, let's protect this yeah. in a positive way. Well, we have a center. So we've built uh, the Age of Union Center in Montreal. It's, uh, it's 12,000 square feet of of basically being immersed in our conservation projects. And we've mm. got these digital immersive meditation rooms, the earth room, the moon room, the sun room, the lava cave, the glacier cave. We're building more. Uh, these are immersive rooms that, that sort of bring you into some of these environments where you've got exhibitions about our different projects. And I think it's a prototype for what I would like to do in Los Angeles and other cities so that people can have an area to gather and talk about talk about these issues because I agree it's people when they're when they're gathered behave differently and are much more collaborative and bridges bridges are possible you know to to be built I think it's so important and I don't think we're going to solve this by shooting at each other on Twitter or yes. threads, you know, yes. so it's yeah, threads. <laughs> God damn. There's always a new one. That's a problem. And then you got to keep up with, I mean, you're helping me keep up with them over here. Leslie, so <laughs> I got you at least, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, you keep talking about some of these people though. Like we, we did bring up Paul Watson there. Yeah. I didn't want to bury that lead. So I had already mentioned that he was a longtime Greenpeace guy. I've been at this for yeah. 50 years, but you were starting to explain a little bit ago about his, battle against whaling and how yeah. he essentially like saved whales. Can you explain when, when this started and what was going on? So this is my book, Age of Igniting the Changemaker. The Changemaker Link in is, description. Sorry? Link in description <laughs> for you. <laughs> the Changemaker is so important to this because people need to understand the power of the individual. Individuals are capable of doing incredible things and then building around them. And, and, and Paul Watson, you might create great things in tech, you know, like people might create great technology. There's lots of things that get celebrated, but one day I think the world will properly celebrate a person that set, that saved every species of whale. It doesn't get appreciated in this world, but I, that's a huge, huge gift that he gave to this planet that our, great 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 grandchildren will be like that's that was a hero for for this planet how did he do it so how did he do it so 400 years of whaling driven the most intelligent animals on this planet to extinction we don't understand anything about whales their brains are are massive they they communicate in ways that uh that we don't understand their eyes see spectrums and possibly even dimensions that we do like elements that we don't even perceive. Uh, and there's some interesting stories that Paul has told me about looking into the eye of a whale. Whale, he's, he, he, the first time he looked into the eye of a whale, it's a crazy story. He, he's felt that the whale could see exactly through him. Mm. Uh, it was a, it was a moment where whales were being chased by an Icelandic or a Norwegian whaler and they shot the mother so that the bulls would come to her rescue. And that bull, <sighs> as it was going to be chased, looked into Paul and his crew on a small Zodiac. It knew the difference between the whalers and Paul. And it looked with its one eye into Paul and with complete pity. What are you, what are you doing? What is your, what is your species doing? And he, it said, Paul said, the, 
that was his first encounter with a whale. He hadn't hit, that was like the very beginning. What kind of whale was it? Was it was a sperm whale. Mm. And it, it felt like it was just x-rays, you know, just going through him and, and just scanning everything about, about him and, and about emotionally. What, what were all the different reasons over those 400 years that people were whaling? So I think that, that what's, what people don't really know is before there was black gold, we hunted whales for oil. We hunted whales to light lamps to... Oh, shit. Yeah, that's right. So we hunted the most intelligent animal for some of... Uh, as a basic commodity. Like we hunted millions of elephants for a raw, for ivory as if it was wood. So that is like the tragedy of what... And the, the reason why the right, the, that one whale is called the right whale, the northern right whale, which is pretty much almost extinct, is because it, would, it was such a blubber... Uh, a rich whale that it was such easy pickings on on the on the ocean it would it would float after you harpooned it it was just it's just it's such a huge crime that we've committed against against this species so so here's one person that's he was one of the founders of greenpeace but he said with green the early greenpeace was very activist but he was like we're not going to we're not going to be able to save whales at the pace we're going it was not enough for 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 captain paul so he started Sea Shepherd, and for the next 50 years, him and his crews put their ships, their bodies between the Icelandic or Norwegian or Japanese whalers and pods of whales and peacefully, nonviolently um, disrupted whale hunts and had collisions with those boats, had major showdowns, had major chases. One team, though, is doing this. Multiple teams, a handful of boats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. I mean, it's well documented in, in there. They've had a number of shows, Whale Wars. There's a great, some great, great movies. There's one called Watson that's on Paul. But I, he, I think I think the, the day that he gets really recognized for what he did is is to come. But I think for me, that's the big inspiration. It's like, what is that one person able to do? with his ability to communicate, to get the media message out, because it's an incredible accomplishment. How many, you may not know this offhand, I can look it up, but how many, like when we're talking about whales, what, what were the main species that were under attack? Sperm whales, blue whales, what, what Fin else? whales, right whales, um, I'm missing. Killer whales? Not orcas. Uh, no, that w wouldn't be a really a whaling species. It's it's the big um, baleen whales, the mm. large baleen, and not as much sperm. Yeah, maybe sperm whales, but that's not a baleen whale. It's a toothed whale, but it's mostly the large, the large whales for uh, for oil. So how many did we when mm. this was at the peak? Millions. Where there Milli were millions. Millions. Taken out. But how many millions. were we down to? Oh, when he was like, oh my god, I got to stop this. I don't know the exact number, but probably hundreds of thousands. Mm. It's kind of like the situation we are with elephants. Well, today we yeah, were thank we, God we, for we people were, like Ryan Tate. Right, we were yeah. millions and millions of elephants, and now we're a few hundred thousand elephants. But right on your theme, though, of like, let's talk about the good things with people. Yeah, 
Ryan and his team and Vet Paul go in there in 2013, right. build it up. The rhinos, let's even with rhinos before we get to elephants, they were down to 15,000 white rhinos yeah. in 2013. They're now up to like almost 30,000 right. 10 years later because those guys at Vet Paul have never lost an animal and so many other people have come in to help out. But that's, it seems like it's the guys like the Paul Rosalies, the Paul Watsons, the mm-hmm. Ryan Tates who have to go in. And, and it sounds so wild, but you have, you know, one person and then their team around them yeah. protecting entire species for the whole world. For the whole and world. And no one sees it. Nobody sees it. And now, and now you have – what greater reward could there be for your life's work? You know, like you could have material or business success, but to see a thousand fin whales gather in the Southern Ocean, which people haven't seen for, for centuries. A thousand. A thousand gathering. It's, it's, it's happened in the last couple of years because of the space that we've given whales to regenerate. That is – that's a legacy. Yeah. They've come back like that, and that you see blue whales in the in 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 places that we didn't see them for a lot of years. That we see uh, that we see certain uh, we see humpback whales thriving. There's certain species that are struggling to recover, but others are have had the space because of that person, one one change maker, and uh, and those teams. And so it's a uh, it it shows you it's possible. And as you say with the vet paw species uh, story, they've turned the numbers around. Yeah. Nature yeah, is res- nature's resilient. Give it, give it some advocates and give it some space. There's, it is not the time to give up. You know, it's yeah. especially not when we have a partner in nature that uh, that will bring it back. Yeah, I'm, I have the video playing behind you, by the way, yeah. of the whales gathering. It's that's a beautiful thing. It's incredible out in the middle yeah. of the ocean. I'll put that in the corner of the screen if it's copyright. Okay, I'll have to check that. But <laughs> okay. I'll definitely put the link to this in the description. It's some Disney Plus. On, on YouTube. But, I'm sure that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they're fine <laughs> with that. But, you know, yeah. I, I just, you know, I, I'm a dude from Jersey. I'm not spending my time in the middle of the Amazon, in the middle of, of Africa. You're or, not coming? Or some, well, <laughs> I haven't yet. I'm definitely coming. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. We keep talking about this. I'm like, I have to fucking go now. I've been working yeah. on this podcast so I can have time to do that. But, you know, it is unfathomable to me, completely unfathomable Maybe not just because of the size of the animal, but looking at some of these creatures, which I would call majestic, like a whale, like an elephant, like a rhino, like the idea of me shooting, I don't care if they're like charging at me, I'll go fucking run up in a tree or something. The idea of shooting that is just fucking crazy, man. What's dark? What's what is that darkness in our, our hearts that lets us think that we can do that? I just don't understand it either, you know? Well, what, what, you know what though? What, what do you, because you get to see the best and worst, yeah. Right, you get to go to these places, and and we keep talking about some of these people who are on the ground, and you talk about the indigenous people, yeah. And I think about how how beautiful it is that they're a little disconnected from all the bullshit we talk about here, and they they can appreciate the nature around them, and that's what they think about. They think about that land, but you come to visit these people, yeah. and you come from city mm-hmm. centers like Montreal yeah. and LA and people, you know, like me are in the club having a good time yeah. and not giving a shit about what's going on. Well, yeah, well, let's talk about disconnection. They're disconnected from bullshit, but we're disconnected from nature. Absolutely. We are so disconnected. We don't know where our food comes from. We don't know how our meat is processed. We don't know where our water comes from. Do people know where it goes? <laughs> we flush it. Do we know how any of it gets treated? Do we know anything about any of the cycles of it? I, they don't even teach that. No. 
I mean, there's a lot of things that they don't teach. Like they don't even teach people how to run their own financial life, you know, in terms of like when they get out of, when they, when they, when they go to make their own life, it's just, but the nature stuff is as we get so caught up in our phones and so on. And I'm sure you, you've talked a lot about this on your show. We're more and more disconnected from, yes. from nature. And when you talk about nature and for me, there's, for me, nature and spirituality are the same thing, right? Mm. And so we have a lack of both of those things in our society. The reason why we can do things like slaughter whales and, uh, and, and, and elephants and destroy ecosystems is because of a complete void of a connection to nature and uh, a connection to spirituality. What is spirituality? Spirituality is a, connected, is a connection to the larger than you. It's a connection to the bigger than what's good for my pocketbook, what's good for my, you know, greed situation, what's good for my own little unit, my family, my comfort. What What is good for the oneness of everything? What's good for the greater union? That's the that's spirituality. It's it's not a religion. It's actually how nature works. You know, it's 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 a it's that that larger thing that we're connected to. So that is something I feel like we need to come back to as a part of this journey in nature. It's the same journey. You know, we we kind of were, if we talk about it in biblical terms, which we don't need to, but I mean, we got kicked out of the garden to learn about ourselves. But yes. at some point we got to come back and be in union and, and in harmony with that garden. That's, mm. the, that's the whole prophecy of the Bible is to that one day we'll deserve to be back there. But right now, obviously we're not. We live completely in disharmony with everything. But one day we will, we are supposed to reconnect with, with that and be the better version of ourselves because not, you know, we probably, some people, if they're tuned in as environmentalists hear that we're in the sixth extinction, we're in the midst of it. Do people know about the five that came before it? No, I don't know shit about it. So the five extinctions that came before the current, the current one's obviously caused by us, right? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. Keep going though. Yeah. Yeah, So there's, there's been six extinctions on this planet. Yes. We're in the midst of the sixth, the human caused one, <laughs> which is horrific. But there has been extinctions on this planet that wiped up 98% of life on this planet. Yeah. And it came back from 98% dead to the next bountiful life. And then a comet came or a very similar situations to what climate change is happening, but more rapid. Well, actually, what we're doing is more rapid because comet hits and it takes a thousand years for for the comet to blanket the planet and so on, but very similar outcomes. So if we wipe out life on this planet from our activities, the sixth extinction, it'll just come back without us in a hundred million years. Mm. But are we that incapable of a species that we don't know any better that we can't come back into harmony with this? Like, are we, is the promise is our, our own human promise that far gone that we don't have the capability to bring ourselves back into unity with, with, with nature at some point with our level of intelligence. I mean, it's up for grabs. I mean, we're, we're I, I'm, I'm hopeful that in the next, you know, that we make a good start in this decade towards, towards turning the trajectory and, and showing people that, that it can be done. And then the next decades have to be in that direction. Do you believe in karma? Define define it how you how you understand it. In the simplest possible terms, 
the idea that what you do comes back around to you, good and bad? Um, I'm not I'm not sure that I believe that exactly, okay. but I mean, I think that that in this case, when it comes to nature, yes, yeah, I I, I do feel that what we're doing to it is is definitely going to affect us badly. I, I guess that. I believe in karma, but the cycles of karma, like if somebody, if somebody does something in this lifetime, will they necessarily feel that in this lifetime? Mm, I, I think it does operate on a larger, like an, on a, on larger cycles. Well, you know? sometimes, it, and karma can work in strange ways. Right. The, the rich guy can step on everyone to become a billionaire and look like he has everything, 10 houses, whatever chick he wants, all that stuff, but yeah. he dies miserable. And that's a form of karma because, right. you know. But they don't all die miserable. They don't all. That's it. <laughs> sure. Sure. So, th so then does karma work in that case? Does it, do his kids have to be miserable for it to, but like. Interesting. But, yeah. but you yeah. know, like does, does karma work on the grand, grander scale that because there's billionaires and because there's mass collections of, of wealth, everybody suffers. Yes. Right. So because we've allowed this to happen we all suffer because there's such a wealth gap. So I believe on that scale of in karma, but do I believe that somebody will get it coming to them in their lifetime in an equal measure that they will, they will be miserable. I don't know that I see that. All right. How about this? Let me amend yeah. the question a little bit across wide populations on average. Yeah. Do you think there's more likely for something like that? Yes. To happen? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I don't know. I think about this in, in the real micro sometimes. Yeah. And like, um, a little OCD for sure. So this probably <laughs> yeah. helps with it. But as an example, I see a Quest bar right here, right? Yeah. I eat a lot of Quest bars. They're wrapped in plastic, mm -hmm. and which it doesn't have to be plastic. It could be anything else, whatever it is. It's something that would be trash, right? Sure. And there are plenty of times where I will go because the wrapper like kind of crumples up or whatever when I'm out in public. And I will go dump it in, in a trash can, maybe on a city street on my way walking. Usually I'm on the phone or something and the wrapper will go in. But a very small piece of it will go on the ground. And when I mm. see that out of yeah. the corner of my eye, I'm now I'm always a little delayed, but I'm still walking. Yeah. And I will literally stop in my tracks yeah. and just be like, no. A, someone else is going to have to pick that up for me. And B, if they don't, it's going in the goddamn ocean. And it's I will go back ocean, yeah. and I will pick it up and I will put right. it in. And it's almost like I feel yeah. like I'm being watched at all times and like, don't fuck this up, Julian. And I, you know, I wonder if I've only ever lived in my head, but it seems like a lot of people don't have that type of feeling. And in a way, it's like that's society. Like yeah. you're trying to take. It's not just for you. You're trying to take care of all the people around you. And what about the other species that like inhabit this place? Because that's why you. Because because you care about the greater good. Yes, exactly. Um, and 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 that extends. I think levels of spirituality for for people are. It develops as it extends to, to greater and greater things. Like, you know, it could start with caring about somebody other than you, your family. But at, at some point you care about your community or you care about your your um, your 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 state or your, your country or you care about other species or you care about other ecosystems. That's a that for me, that's a spiritual evolution of of caring about the greater good in, in larger and larger capacities or your heart is compassionate to the degree that you you have a bit you have a you have a greater and greater concern for more and it's less about you and i think it's i think that's one of the things that uh that as you as you do get older 
early in life, you build a foundation for yourself. I write about this in Age of Union. There's different stages because I know a lot, of, a lot of young people feel like I want to be giving a lot, doing impact now. But I think that it's it's important to build your foundation of, of being able to have resources, kind of like I did when I started Lightspeed. And then as you grow, you hopefully what happens as you develop is you you start to have a greater span of what you care about and, and what you uh, include in that uh, circle of compassion. And for you, it includes species. It includes uh, what happens to the ocean. And I think that that's where, hum- where humanity has to get to is how every- if everybody cared, if everybody, if we had 8 billion change makers instead of 8 billion individualists, wouldn't have these problems. Sure. I think the the cynical argument to some of that would be that of these 8 billion people in the world, how many of them are extremely successful guys like Dax Da Silva who control their own destiny? Sure. Right away. I don't think that – like I think different people can affect things in very different ways though. You don't yeah. have to be – you know, you're fortunate enough to have worked hard and got to where you are to be able to pay it forward, which is a beautiful thing. But like you don't have to be you know, the billionaire guy funding everything just to make a difference. It can be something as simple as making sure you pick up that second part of the wrapper and just make the world a little better just through doing that, you know? Well, I th- that's what I – that's – it's those daily things. It's the, it's, it's the doing the, the everyday thing with intention. That is important. Yeah, it's we are so on autopilot in our day to day actions. When we when we get off autopilot and we start to be intentional about the things that we choose to do in terms of like what what am I eating? What what how am I transporting myself? What are the what came what went into this meal? Uh, what what are the impacts of uh, of um, all kinds of consumer decisions? That's when the ordinary becomes elevated. You know, that's uh, from Judaism. It's called the mitzvah. You do something, uh, do something very ordinary, but you elevate it spiritually by having an intent behind it. And if we got out of autopilot and more and more of the things that we did, maybe you start with a couple things, but more and more of the things that you did throughout the day were intentional mm-hmm. and had had meaning and were and considered the greater, whether it's people or animals or eco- ecosystems or all of it. That's where we have meaning and purpose in our in our day to day and i think people are complain about lacking that yes it's it's probably to me the biggest underlying problem that humanity has i mean i'm always very respectful of organized religion i think the majority of people involved with organized religion use it for beautiful things and i i think that's awesome i'm not through my own experience i'm not the biggest fan of of some of it for myself but i do even if I have that bias, yeah. it is very hard to ignore the correlation over the last 15, 20 years of, you know, a lot of people moving away from religion and finding meaning in like bullshit, like politics or stuff yeah, like that. Right. Where I, I then empathize with them because I'm like, oh, that, that is all they're looking for. They're looking for their reason to yeah. exist or whatever because as humans, we like to go yeah. towards teams. But, you know, if the backstop isn't like religion or something like that, there's got to be better ways mm-hmm. for people to use their outlets. And maybe that's why when you make the tie between like spirituality and nature. Yeah. And can we all be team nature right. for a minute? Fuck yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. that's something people can be like religious, not religious. You can yeah. get behind that, you know? Well, and in this moment of disconnection from nature, 
we should all just try to get out in nature. You know, mm. I, that's something I've tried to do. Uh, it, I think it started a lot with, obviously I've been doing this since I was a kid, but I started doing a lot more of it when Age of Union started. Uh, also, you know, I just ha- have this new place in LA, but just spending my time in California in the surrounding areas mm. where we will feel more connected, not just to nature, but, but ourselves to develop our people are always asking, how do I develop that spiritual instrument? Start with nature, start with nature. You know, that's, and I think that if we, if we think about, um, spirituality an an interesting way to think about it is think about yourself as an instrument. You're a body, you're a soul, you're a mind, have all of those things work to, make the world better, but you're just an instrument, you know, you're, you're, you're a conduit. And the more that instrument's attuned to the, to doing good for the greater, the more positive impact that you have. I, that's my daily prayer is just make me a better instrument. Mm. What can this instrument do? That's why I work on my body. That's why I work on my mind. That's why I build my soul. That's why I spend time in nature so that I can be a better instrument. Um, and I'm a flawed instrument. You know, but that's that's the that's the hope, and and I think that you can you can do more, and your your impact can get can get yeah can get developed, and you develop your talents. Everybody's got those un- unique abilities, right? So, did you develop a lot of? Because it sounds like you're very very interested in the power of the mind and everything. Did you yeah. develop a lot of that in your career, or is that something you were interested in as a young kid? I I think that the <laughs> just the whole CEO experience for 17 years. I was an introvert. You know, and, mm. and I think deep down had no real innate leadership capability until I was thrown into having to lead a team. I was a software developer starting at 13 and started the company at 28, but I'd done just software on my own for a good, what is that, 15 years. As can, a we, one, can we talk about that company? Yeah, by the way? sure. Just yeah. Like for a little background for people. Right. So started Lightspeed when I was 28 in 2005 and... Uh, that's it's a tech company that is now public in, in the Toronto Stock Exchange. We took it public in in 2019, and then a year later listed it in the New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. So there's, so you can you can see LSPD uh, see how our stocks doing. Bye not, bye 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 bye. Not as not as good as it was doing in 2021 <laughs> when the when the tech market was booming, but it's doing good. It's doing good. But um, yeah, so I started that in 2005. I built retail software. I, I worked for a lot of Apple dealerships all through my teens and 20s. I was a real Mac nerd. When Apple was like on its last legs and Steve Jobs hadn't even come back to the company yet, mm. then it had its huge resurgence. And because I was building Mac software, ah. I rode that wave. And when everybody wanted to have a Mac in their in their store and restaurant, that's what Lightspeed did. And so we we basically were hugely successful from the very beginning. So now, you did a lot more than like credit card processing. You yeah, were the whole back end. It was mostly not credit card processing. That was not something we even had as a part of our software for, mm. I would say, the first decade it was mostly running the back end of a retail store so our original customers were apple dealerships before there's apple stores apple apple dealerships so it was kind of like a like you have a toyota dealership <laughs> then apple wiped them all out by opening its own stores so yeah. real gratitude but <laughs> steve jobs didn't feel like those dealerships were up to his standards in terms of aesthetics so they definitely were not <laughs> as someone who loves steve jobs and studies uh, me too. everything He's he a does hero of mine. 
he he had a very specific way right. things needed to he be did. done. He did. He uh, did. And th- and those were lots of our friends, and helped Lightspeed in the early days. But yeah, so uh, that was that was sort of the our early customers. So hundreds of thousands of SKUs in the inventory, parts and 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 accessories and all that kind of thing. That's a lot. Like suppliers in different currencies and different countries and very complex multiple locations these these retail stores had and then we brought that sort of complexity management back-end management to hospitality so we we occupy a certain segment of the market that's too small for an enterprise custom system but too big for like a shopify or a square or Mm. a clover which is mostly uh, you know for the for the for the outfits that don't have the complexity so we we operate in that and I, i guess the first 10 years were just no, first seven years was bootstrapping. That was me not knowing anything about business, but but having a good sense of of the market and and software and kind of managing the cash on my own. We were profitable. Those are the profitable years, actually, <laughs> when I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, funny how that works. <laughs> it's funny how that works. Then the VCs come in, and then the market comes in. Then you were always losing money, <laughs> right? <laughs> so the first seven years are incredible. Actually, I built, bought, was able to buy real estate with all our profits, and that's mm. that's how the Age of Union Center exists today. Is because that was the last big building we bought before we got invested in by venture capital. Oh, so, that's cool. Yeah. So the next seven years was about three hundred million in VC money from Silicon Valley. Uh, from a bunch of Canadian funds. And then that got us to the point where we then took it public. But we were talking a little bit offline. It was a roller coaster ride. There was one point where, you know, so many things happened concurrently that were just like very, very difficult. One investor wanted their money out. There was a huge HR issue in the company. Uh, A friend of mine who was an alcoholic was struggling. And I, you know, brought him in from, from, from Mexico after he had a knife fight on the beach. Oh, and sure. all these things simultaneously, and I'm working on my online magazine for the new gallery I opened, and, and I felt my face paralyze. This is a couple of years mm. before the IPO. And when you say paralyze, like it just like a stroke almost? Well, it felt well, I, like? I didn't know what it was. Um, and I, I went to the, uh, to the doctor with my French tutor. And she's like, your face isn't moving. We're going, we're going to, the, to the emergency. And it was Bell's palsy. Mm. Uh, and so it was just, I think, I thought it was Superman at this point, you know, because with all of those things happening and all of this, this pressure to grow and, and all of this, I could deal with it mentally. I could deal with it spiritually because I had invested, you know, so much in, in those things and in my body too. But the body cracks when it's, that's the one thing that I don't think, I think we know the least about, I think we know how it works, but uh, I've never felt so helpless. The next, I think the same day I was, I had a lunch with investors, the ones, the Canadian investors that were trying to help me buy out the American investors. uh, And I had soup falling out of my mouth and I was like, the last thing I wanted to do was give up because it's not in my not in my nature. And I said, "You guys have to. We have to. We have to get. We have to. I can't lead this. We need to do what these investors want. And just sell it off." And that was that was sort of a low point, you know. And, but you didn't end up doing that. Obviously. But we didn't. So in the end, uh, in in the end, a lot of that was resolved. My friend with lost his battle with al- alcoholism, unfortunately. Mm, sorry, to hear in that. past, but we did 
find a win-win-win for our, our original believers, our original investors that did need money back out for their fund uh, from 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 Silicon Valley. We, the the Canadians came in and bought them out. Then they took it public and looked like geniuses yeah. <laughs> for doing that. We got to keep growing the company. Did you take some time away for that though? Because I mean, your face looks great now, so obviously, like you healed. But that that sounds nasty. I mean, I thank God for. Uh, non-traditional medicine you know like acupuncture which i heard randomly through somebody was the only thing that was able to bring back my face you know so they were acupuncture in your face yeah for like for about two months and uh it brought enough blood back that it that it restored but it's when you're physically uh, for many of you that have had an injury you know what it's like you know you feel almost your body's almost a theory until something happens to it like you're especially when you're a young man or young woman and you just like you're just such a machine and such a superhuman until something changes your perspective and you realize you're flesh and bone you know yeah uh, and then that's like we're talking about it how when you're building as an entrepreneur you can have a strong mind you know everybody in the company looked to me for strength because i was somebody who would always stay calm no matter what happened um but but the body's something you got to take care of it's just it's just one of those things that you can't, you you can't just do a meditation or uh, read a book and bring it back. Mm. You know, it's yeah, it's a precious part of the instrument. Yeah, and it, it it's you were talking with me about about this in the car a little bit, but like the top down mechanism of it. You know, you can have real underlying health problems that are you know mm -hmm. internal issues, yeah. and they're just exacerbated by the environment. By you stress, may exactly. Yeah. that you subject that to, and it's like. You had another line in the car where you were like, we, we're starting to under, I, I may get this wrong. So if I fuck it up, correct me, but like, we're starting to understand the body very well, but we still, or no, we're starting to understand the mind pretty well, but we still don't understand the body. Yeah. We, we, because we're spending so much time trying to psychoanalyze every last thing, <laughs> you know, I think we're, we do understand a little bit more. We, I mean, we understand zero about the subconscious don't even really know how dreams work. We don't really know how, actually we don't know much. So, but we know even less about some of the really mysterious things about how the body reacts to things or why it, why it does the things that it does. If we understood those things, we would be able to solve widespread problems like diabetes and heart disease and cancer and, mm. and, uh, or maybe we just don't want to do the, the the solutions to those because we like to eat what we eat. We like to live the way that we live for the most part. But yeah, the body, I think, is one of those things where it needs to be treated with a lot more care than I think that we generally do. And I think there's a reverence because it's that part of the instrument that you only when you lose it, do you realize, do you realize yeah. how important it is? I When I lost that part of my face, I realized that every, all that tool, tools to be able to convince people, to charm people, to bring them, to, to bring people together, all that confidence was gone, was gone. Mm. And I knew, and I, there's a real possibility of Bell's palsy that it doesn't come back. I was terrified. Yeah. That's, I mean, losing control is the ultimate. Yeah. You know, I was telling you, I had another thing where I was dealing with it. I'm still dealing with it. But the first time it came up, I, I don't know if I told you this, but I had to go to the ER because I thought I was having a heart attack. Right. And then I was hoping afterwards it was like a panic attack, which was wishful thinking. It wasn't. But like, yeah. we, obviously, like I'm fine. But when you start to feel that, I, I don't, mm. I can't even imagine what it feels like on my face. I can only speak to this experience. But when you start to feel that, like 
there's a reason they call it a heart attack or a heart attack symptom where your own body is just working against itself. You know, everything that seems to be a problem or was a problem right before that suddenly does not fucking matter. And you're like, I can't do shit about this. It's a really awful feeling. But to be running, you know, to be building anything, but to be running a company in the middle of that and still like getting shit done is is wild. And, you know, by, by the way, how old are you? I'm 47. Yeah. Can you look <laughs> in that camera and say that? You're 47 years old. I I, mean, I was looking at it. I need like, do you have the elixir of life or something? You look like you're like 35. Well, thank you. I, I don't, I, from everything I've been through, I should look 60. That's what I'm saying. Like you're talking about all these struggles, 17 years building a business, coding since you were 13, trying to I fight know, off it's... all the people around the world with conservation and you that's look why, like that's this. Why, that's why I don't tell people that I was CEO for 17 years and I retired because they're like, how old are you? <laughs> got like a good like, skincare uh, routine or something i mean no shit. <laughs> no nothing basic basic but i mean you're yeah. in shape you obviously yeah. work out a lot how old are you guys i'm not 47 i'll tell you that <laughs> christ i mean but it, it, you, you seem like a guy who works out a lot no yeah i think it's always been something that's that's uh that's super important to me i think from my teens i, I was a tiny kid so i think it was just I guess insecurity drove, mm. <laughs> drove me from being a 140 pound kind of uh, you know teenager to you know somebody that was that was bigger. But now I've like you know I got really big in my te- my 20s and 30s, and now I th- kind of like a little bit more of the it's not as, it's not as fashionable to be massive. <laughs> Just looks stupid. I <laughs> who, who cares? Who cares? Everyone judges everything these days. Uh, like I think it, it I think it all looks good. If, Just, if, uh, if people are healthy, that's what matters. You know, different sure. different strokes, different folks on how to do it. But you, you spend 17 years with that and we had talked about this at the very beginning of yeah. our conversation, but you move on from CEO to executive chairman to start working on these causes around the world. Was there like a like I had asked you earlier yeah. like what had gotten you into it and you mentioned when you were 19 going out in that protest but was there something other than just i was tired of being the ceo and now this was my interest so i'm going to go to this or was there like a like a spark thing that happened where you're like oh it's time that i start really putting my money where my mouth is with this so i i believe i believe very much in there's a bigger plan than i I never a master. I don't have a master plan. You know, Mm. there's a bigger master plan uh, that's at work, and I just have to become a better listener for it Mm. and do the things that I I feel called to do. So one of those things was the book, right? And I think that the book, and I would would totally write this book totally differently because now that I've talked about it for so many years, uh, it's all there. But now that I've discussed it with so many people. Um, I feel like I almost have a vernacular version of it, but it, it does have the core things that are a part of the, of, of the, of the project and it evolved into the project supernaturally. Uh, so there's leadership. These are the, the, for me, there's a recipe for being a change maker. There's leadership, which for me was light speed that gave, taught me how to be a leader, uh, whether I wanted to or not. And I can tell you a bit of the story of the early days of that. Please. Mess. Please. Uh, and yeah. then uh, there's so leadership, culture. Culture is mm. very, very, hu- a very human thing. It's the be- it's what's beautiful about humanity. Whenever people say that, that humans are the parasite, 
uh, and uh, we very much are, but what's beautiful about humanity is, is the culture, yes. right? The art, the food, the, the music, the architecture, those are the beautiful things we bring into, into the planet. They're also our behaviors. So it's the way that we operate in the world and those things can be, those things can evolve. So there's so much promise in culture and so much beauty that we bring there. And that's a big part of, uh, of storytelling and communications. It's like, it's like how we're getting this, the word out about this right now. So leadership, culture, spirituality, which is a concern for the, for the, bit, for the greater good, uh, which we've lost a connection to. And then finally nature, right? Mm. If we can get the first three and nature's our foundation, that's how we can, we can become change makers for nature. And the book ended up being about, about nature. So that book, when COVID hit, I was like, okay, well, let's get the book out there as an ebook and as a, and as a, a podcast. And I think I told you the story earlier. That's how we met Paul and how we met yeah. Paul Watson and how we got these folks and, and Dr. Carey and, and, uh, and others, how we got those folks uh, doing early Instagram lives and how, when I created age of union as a, as an organization, they were the first ones to fund and they knew other, other people on the ground that were doing incredible things. They were like, this is our chance to maybe get the best projects that are the, that exemplify what we should be doing everywhere how we can get them funded, you know, and, and that's, that's sort of how it all, it all came together. But I think for me being on the ground with those projects, there's a, there's a short film called heart of Emission, which is me meeting our first project, which is Paul's project. It's a six minute film on, on, um, uh, on YouTube. Meeting those first projects is, it was hugely transformational. Uh, going into the Amazon the first time, you know what the the from from this one gate to Paul's project should take uh, an hour and a half of driving and then down the river. It took us seven hours because <laughs> it was a <laughs> tropical rainstorm. It took us an, two additional days of this rainstorm. We were we had to push our our van out of uh, out of mud. We had to clear a boa constrictor out of the way. We had to hack through. Uh, you know, Paul's team over there said that was the worst entry to the Amazon they've ever seen. And that's <laughs> the one we had. We were like on the river uh, at night because we missed we missed Paul's boat pickup. And I, we were with um, uh, some of the Peruvians that are part of that team. We're on this stolen boat in the middle of uh, the Las Piedras River uh, and with a flashlight. Uh, the the guy at the front was like flashing his flashlight so that we didn't hit a log because we go into the river and the guy at the back is like moving the boat out of the way of the logs and along the sides of the river are eyes of caimans everywhere. Uh, and so Paul's <laughs> got no guns. <laughs> Fucking guy goes yeah. in there completely unarmed, but that's besides the point. <laughs> we meet Paul. He shows us to our room. Uh, we shine our flashlight and there's bats all across oh, the top of this uh, nice. this lodge. And we had to like throw some things at them so they don't shit directly on us at night. Then we have to go to bed. <laughs> oh my God. Every, every couple hours we're rescuing a snake and putting, putting a snake into a, into a bag and taking it with us. I was like, I experienced that on the way into the Amazon because in these areas where there's loggers and, and people that have come from the Andes, ex-cocaine farmers that are doing these extraction jobs uh, in the Amazon – they see a snake. They're not native. They, these people don't know the, 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 the Amazon. They don't know the creatures. Mm. They'll just slice it in half. So we would grab and rescue snakes from these areas where they were sort of vulnerable, bring them to the reserve, to the sanctuary, and, and, and release them. So wow. I got, I got, I got uh, very used to and fell in love with snakes on that trip. But it's being in these places and, and uh, being with these animals where you realize that, that mother tarantula 
that's on that mound and is, and is surrounded by all her babies, that's her home. Mm. You know, you can move a snake into the into the reserve, but uh, the, that snake is so used to the smells of where it came from that it has like a 10% chance of surviving because all the other animals in that area know it better than that snake. Yeah. So you might think you're doing a great thing, but and you got to give it that 10% chance, but the animals have homes and it comes so clear to you when you're in these places that we don't protect these places. They don't have one. You know, they don't have a home. So yeah, that's the thing. You can't really fuck with nature. You know, nature, no. there's a reason that things are what they are and where they are and why they are. And, and yeah. like, I get so stressed out, like thinking about evolutionary biology and how many millions of years this took and yeah. why this bird ends up with that beak and that one ends up with that beak and this one lives there and that one lives there. But you're hundred percent right. It's, it's not just like, like as human beings, we have, you know, those main things that can make us technically able and cultured and civilizations, the biggest part of it that can let us drop into other places and survive. Yeah. But like in, in the wild West that is nature, I mean, these, these fucking animals have to kill dinner. Yeah. You know, there's no, it's like the real old, old days for humanity where you couldn't just drop in somewhere. So it's, it's fascinating to hear you put it that way. Mm-hmm. But what's the, you know, when you went into the Amazon for the first time, you know, it, I'm because we have the video playing behind you right here. Oh, right, I yeah. can put some of that in the corner of the screen. I've just yeah. been watching it while you're talking. But oh, here, here's the, the the snake we're gonna put back on the tree. Well, that's like is that Paul? No, Paul. Me, yeah. Well, Paul made me climb that tree, which was. I came back from there like with a huge bruise because I pulled. I was just a mess. Paul made me do all these things that when I came <laughs> when I came back I, when I came back I was covered in bites. Yeah. He made me do all the things I wasn't supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> Jump in the river um, where I was, f- for the most of the trip, I was I had like long sleeve, all the stuff you're supposed to do, long sleeve pants. You know, uh, Paul's out there. He's like, oh, you, you got you to gotta have your shower in the river. <laughs> Two days later, later, I'm just covered, covered in bites. I don't know he's immune to it at this point, yeah. so he doesn't get bitten. Yeah. But me, I'm suffering that climbing that tree i had i pulled my triceps so all of this is black when i come back i thought i had a spider bite i went to almost almost went to the emergency they were like no that's a bruise from was there even an emergency room anywhere around no no when i got back to miami i was in miami (laughs) so it's just (laughs) yeah you're out in the middle of nowhere there i mean i love reading about the things in the amazon because they still haven't even discovered like i forget the number but some ridiculous percentage of species in there there's a bug that just bites people on the lips you don't know it's coming it's this little fucking thing and if it bites you it kills you over a 20 year period i mean there is so much you're literally seeing something new all the time yeah it's it's quite different from the area that we went to in the congo which is quite sad they what is it called um not silent forest but something like that because of the that a lot of these forests have been hunted out Mm. you don't hear anything you know silent spring all the way hunted out yeah so there's gorillas so you'll find gorillas and they're and they're eating because they're protected and they're eating the the bamboo but you don't hear birds you don't hear anything, and it's. I'm sure it's not like that all throughout Cozy Biega, but there's par- parts of those those uh, those those places are so hunted out that hasn't happened in in those in the parts that we were uh, in in the Amazon. But uh, that's one of the that's one of the real challenges in Africa um, compared to, uh, or the parts of Africa we went to compared to here, and that's really really sad to see because yeah. you think you're in a protected area, but you don't hear anything anymore. You know. Yeah, I mean, and there, look, 
yeah, and this is another thing I think Paul has an amazing viewpoint on, and Ryan Tate as well. Like, you know, their hunters are a part of the ecosystem, and yeah. there's great hunting i don't know if that's how you want to describe it but like there's very important hunting that happens you yeah. know you have to you, you can't just have the planet overrun with species human beings have been here we have hunted to kill food over years and years and years but it's a matter of like what are we doing and what are we doing it for yeah you know you talked earlier about the trawlers in yeah. the sea and it's just overfishing so okay you need to fish this is crazy though too much but you know you look at like game hunting and stuff you know, I, I'm sure we have fans out there who are hunters and are into some of that. But, like, I'd much rather hear about someone going, like, elk hunting or something where they're going to go feed people. You know, when, when we start talking, especially, like, some of the prize hunting, like, that happens in Africa to me, it's just like, what are you doing? Like, you, you're you going to put a head on a fucking wall somewhere? That's not a sport. It's not. It's not. And I don't know what 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 is derived from that for people i just don't know is it is it a power that you have over the life of something else that's sick in in some ways in my in my opinion i mean mm. lots of people see it a different way but i just i have a hard time understanding it i think that might be spot on like there's something there's something innate like there's a different feeling of power when you can provide dinner for oh, your for family sure. that's yeah. different that's so totally different but like the idea yeah. of just killing because you can or killing because like for example they want to stick a rhino horn on a table at a business meeting right. or something like yeah. that so let's hack a fucking rhino to death yeah. and le not even to death leave it there to die yeah that is doesn't process for me it's crazy i i did suggest to to some hunters um that because there are traditions of business people especially in canada that do these hunting trips that do you know, salmon fishing or like, you know, fishing trips, uh, of, of, of big, big game in the sea or in the, uh, in, in the forest, would your kids be, wouldn't your kids be more impressed if you, cause obviously these people bring these trophies back home and the kids yes. are, their kids are horrified. Their family's not very proud of them. Yeah. Would it be better if you maybe took some videographers out with you yes. and, you, and you, and you, your hunting trip with your buddies, you can still get drunk and bond. But you brought back some incredible footage of, of the animals that you saw. Would, would your and, you, and your kids could like use it on TikTok or use it, uh, you know, wouldn't that be a better thing to bring home? Uh, mm -hmm. Like change up hunting, you know, like bring it, make it a, make it something that's, and then as part of it, you know, donate something to that area to protect it for, for a legacy. Yeah, one of the things with nature and, and protecting nature is that's one thing you can do. There's very few things that are for forever. You know, my company will disappear at at, at some point. Will it last a hundred years? Who knows? But if I if we protect nature, of course, everything can change a little bit. But if if governments change things, but nature, if you protect nature, that could be a forever legacy. You know, that's a that's a huge thing that that you can involve yourself with. That, that's uh, that's that I think that these folks with, with money, like if they are doing these hunting trips or they, they are doing some of this, um, these other kinds of investments, like I think everybody should start to think that way. Yeah. I, we talked a little bit earlier about the difficulty of, you know, getting all 30 on board or stuff like that with things through the UN. And, and yeah. this is on a similar wavelength, but like when you talk about making change, it does involve governments as messy yeah. as they are. And it's different all over the world. Everyone's yeah. got different needs. There's all kinds of power mongering and stuff like that. But, you know, it does constantly feel like 
you know, one step forward is some other step backward. And I, as an example, there is a law in New Jersey, and I think it's in New York too, but it's here in New Jersey where when we go to the store, we now have to like bring bags. They don't give us plastic bags. Okay, great. On yeah. the surface, I'm like, great. Then you go into the store. My mom pointed this out yesterday, and she's 100% right about this. She's like, okay. So they stop us from using plastic bags, which is the one thing that is like the most convenience that like actually like probably the most needed for people to like generally be able to go to the store without thinking about it, get what yeah. they need, provide for their family. But when you go through the entire aisle, every fucking thing there is packed in plastic. Yeah. It's packed in all the shit mm-hmm. that they're not letting the end consumer use at all. Right. And so to me, that's just a perfect example of like – you know, someone in government somewhere wanted to do a good thing, and then everyone else says, fine, do that, but we're all going to do this over yeah. here because our donors are these guys, and we need to take care of them, but fuck these people. Yeah, you know? like, like why, have, why, has, why have the uh, bottlers, like the people that make all our plastic water or our, like, our yes. soda can, like, how come they've never, ever had any pressure to come up with alternatives? Yes. You know, the minute the government said you can't do that anymore, they'd come up with it. Mm-hmm. They build it into the price. Yeah, if it was more expensive, and it probably isn't. There's no pressure put on on any of them, you know. So, yeah. What about takeout? You know, if it was mandated that everybody had to use reusable, and I've seen I see this starting to happen in some cities. There's a standardized uh, takeout container that everybody has to use. Just let's start being brave, you know. Let, let's start mandating some of these things, and the market will respond. It'll adapt. Create some constraints around yeah. companies. Why are why are they allowed to do things without any? Why are they allowed to put things into the environment with no responsibility to, to have to take them out? Why are they? And why are they allowed? Like when it comes to things like extraction, why are they allowed to log or do do those kinds of things and not have to have any obligation to restore or mine? Yes. Yes. It, it just it's kind of crazy that that governments sort of roll over uh, for. For, for, for companies without giving them any responsibility when the responsibilities that they have could actually create jobs for, for local people. If there was a restoration step, that creates employment. Like, why do we not think about some of these things? And I, I think I think it's, if the people care, government cares. The government's not going to make something a priority that isn't a priority mm-hmm. for, for people. And so that's why I think it's important for people to get more conscious to reward um, uh, governments that do these kinds of things and to support them when they want to do something brave because they're not going to risk their, they're not going to put themselves at risk for something that people don't care about or or don't really support. Yes. You know, governments have like a top three and they'll kind of act on those things. And if they're healthcare and, um, and jobs and and one other thing and the, and the environments down here, a lot of government, a lot of people go into government for very good reasons. They want to protect nature. They want to do good things for their kids and grandkids and their and their own health. But and if the it's donors if, come in, but if it's down the list and 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 yeah. other and it's not popular with people or their donors, then they'll it'll get deprioritized. And that's the problem. You know, all these politicians they don't really have power. Right. They're con- I mean, you know this world well. Like they're controlled by money. Like you're using your money for great things, but there's a lot of people using their money mm-hmm. in DC and in the different capitals around the world not for great things. And yeah. like, you know, that's why like bringing content and beauty to people like what you're trying to do is really good right. because it's digestible. 
It's something enjoyable. People can kind of relax late at night and watch it on their off time because I also remember, or at least try to remind myself, I should say, that you know people, the average person has has a life. They have kids. Yeah. They have responsibilities. They're trying to pay the bills. They yeah. have the same twenty four sure. hours in the day you and I do. And you know, not everyone like there's other things to get prioritized, and that means they're not there's not like a fault for them being like, yo, fuck the environment. It's not no, like no, that. No, it's just that people need to be, they need to feel inspired rather than forced. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you start with the plastic bags thing, when yeah. they walk through the aisles and see everything plastic, they yeah. feel forced. Right. Right. But if but if they were like, oh shit, wow, every time like you know those um. Those water fountains now where you go and you put the you put you can refill your bottle yeah. underneath it and mm-hmm. it shows you the number that have been saved by you doing this. Love that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That I I go like it then it gamifies I drink more water. I'm like, <laughs> oh, let's go up, let's save a few more. Yeah. You know, yeah. like that is so much better of a type of system. Right. But I feel like a lot of times like corporations and governments, like you you can pick your poison here, like they end up getting in the way for different reasons. Yeah. I think it's it's like I said, governments will respond to when people care. You know, there could be donors, but then it's voters at the end of the day that will that will keep them in power or not. You know, it's it is a different situation in Canada because you can't have as much campaign money involved. There's like there's a real cap. Yeah. But uh, if the people care, government cares, and yes. I think we have to remind ourselves that uh, we are in charge of the priorities. Well, we are, but also you know that the donor class problem is real. I mean, I, are you familiar with the story of Steve Donziger? No. Okay. So this is a guy who hopefully in the fall, I'm going to be bringing on the podcast, but he is a lawyer in New York who since 1993 has been at war with Chevron. Okay. So yep. without going all the way into the details so that I don't fuck something up here, <laughs> he, essentially Chevron was dumping waste right. into into Ecuador and into yeah. the environment there. Donziger figured it out, went down there, started fighting them like crazy. Now Chevron's this huge multinational <clears throat> right. oil company. They have influence absolutely everywhere. And I'm going to really truncate this story. There's a lot more detail, but he ends up helping make documentaries through it constantly hitting his hand against a brick wall and getting nothing but blood on his own hands. Yeah. And it ends up going through they they bring it to court in New York and you know they're trying to just outspend him outspend him outspend him so that he goes away. Doesn't go away. And so the Chevron lawyers say to the New York courts, "All right, we'll do it in Ecuador and we will accept whatever the Ecuadorian court says." Right. So they go down to Ecuador the very first hearing in Ecuador, they send in 10 new lawyers and they try to say, no, no, we're not going to do it here. So yeah. again, trying to outspend them. Case goes through in Ecuador. The Ecuadorian court awards the victims billions of dollars. Wow. Chevron immediately has to leave Ecuador. Right. So what do they do? Yeah. They find a way to get a battle back into New York courts. They own all the all the media as well because right. they're funding through all yeah. their advertisements and stuff so they push down the story they end up getting some sort of judgment like against the cause yeah. and so then Donzinger they try to like blackmail him they they try to get his cell phone records and everything he doesn't hand him over he ends up in prison 
wow. for like six months and then a year yeah. on house arrest for contempt of court. And I forget what it was, but the judge in the case had ties back to Chevron. And so he is Jeez. now, you know, the yeah. guy's amazing and like yeah. he's so, I don't want to use this word, but like I don't blame him. Like he's clearly very like jaded by yes. the whole thing and right. I don't blame him yeah. one bit. And he, he, went, did, he went up against the machine and the machine was And he got massive. killed. Yeah. And the point is the yeah. machine was the government but not really it was the right. government owned by the sure. by the companies yeah. and so i see this cycle because you know you have people like yeah. libertarians and socialists i guess like opposites fight like okay leave it in the private okay put it all yeah government and it's like you're gonna get fucked some way or another yeah. and the cynic in me and i hate to say that in conversations like this because mm -hmm. i feel like we're doing so much good to inspire change but the cynic in me says How's how's this system going to change when you yeah. have this groupthink mechanism that's been in place over and over again and swallows up the people like the Don, the, the yeah. Donzingers of the world? Mm -hmm. It's uh, that's a, it's a tough one because that's the machine. We've got we are we are in a like the peak of capitalism right now. But remember, mm. capitalism is our tool. It's not. It's neither. It's neither good nor bad. You know, same like same as the internet, same with social media. Um, I'm not sure about Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Threads is obviously good. No, um, but you know, these are things that uh, uh, think about capitalism, right? I'll, I'll give you one small example. If we, let's say, there was a new recyclable, oh, sorry, a new type of packaging uh, for plastic water, for plastic water, for water, and the market, everybody bought it, right? Because it's, maybe it's five cents more, but everybody is more conscious. We're going to spend the extra five cents. Capitalism um, creates the it creates the supply and demand to make that the the dominant sure. thing, and it changes everything, right? It changes all of the dynamics. So even though it's brought all this negative into the world because of the prolif proliferation of 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 negative things, it can also bring the the rapid proliferation of the right things. So it's ultimately our tool. It's ultimately our leadership of these companies. Ultimately, our, our oversight. It's shareholders. It's we have to care. People are behind these things. People have to care. People have to not give up and and put these things into check. Because ultimately, these are all human inventions, and these are our tools. And anything we've created that's destructive we can reposition that thing to not be destructive. Maybe it's a long-term thing. Maybe it's a, it, maybe it's a 100 or 200 year journey of capitalism, you know, cause we, it's taken mm. us thousands of years to get here. Uh, you know, we're in a very destructive period. The amount of destruction that we've done from the seventies till now to, to the world's forest and to the, to, to nature's like never happened on this planet, yeah. even with the rapid extinctions, they, they happened over, hundreds of thousands of years, not like this, but, but the promise that we can do something very quickly is because capitalism actually works quite fast. You can, you can deep, you can change if behavior changes or consumer preference changes and there are, are alternatives to things. Um, it can change quickly. Right. So that's, that's like, it's the negative, but it's also the, the possibility. Yeah, I, I always – I've said this probably 50, 60 times on this podcast, but like capitalism has some serious flaws. But yeah, I mean I think it's it's the best system and how do we 
like you're saying, I like how you put that, like it's still somewhat of a new invention in the right. context of human history. How do we keep perfecting it to try to work out those flaws? In the example you give or you gave at the very beginning of that though with like, okay, here's a better example yeah. X thing and it's five cents more. What we got to figure out is how to make that five cents less with yeah, capitalism yeah. because right. at the end of the day, across a group, people are right. going to spend on it. At, they're going to get the quality for the best price. Right. Right. So, you know, and that presents an issue because, and I do want to talk about this, put a, put a, uh, a button in it with, you know, some of the deforestation that's happened specifically since the seventies, but like, you know, you can get past the point right. of no return on the way there. So how do we how do we fix that? Well, it's not past the point yet, right? Yet. So it's not past the point yet. So that that's why I think we've got to really create a sense of urgency around what can be done in this decade. I really feel like we need to just feel like we've turned a corner in un- at least understanding. Um the deforestation, I want, I want to come back to, there was one thing that I had a discussion with about somebody. Let me just look it up. So I'd never heard this term because I've heard about cell-based meats, um, but precision fermentation is something that people are, are exploring. It's um, another meat alternative. I don't think that people realize um, how much forest and Amazon currently, but m- most of the lower 48, all of that nature has been lost to cattle ranching. Oh, let's talk like, about this. cattle yeah, ranching yeah. is yeah. the ask Paul what what the yes. threat to the Amazon is. Ask what and and the Brazilians, for example, um, they they say and there's a huge cowboy culture being created there. They're like, well, you did it to all your forests, like you mow down everything, and you have ranches, and you have, you like beef. How come we can't do it? Don't be like us. Do differently. Right. It's a hard message. You're and right. so it's our it's our thirst and our, it's our love of beef that's actually caused all of the forest, most of the forest cover to, to go. Of course, there's a, it's a different situation in Indonesia with, with palm oil and all that. But for, for, for the Americas, it's, it's mostly, it's a story about beef. Mo, a huge percentage of, of the U- United States is, is ranch. And what is, being, what is at risk in the Amazon long-term is ranching. So if there were alternatives, and I know that there's been a couple of attempts, but if there was alternatives that didn't require that was that you know like that didn't require um, the ranch land or the the the, the, the crops, and even if, if it just meant that people reduced, that could make a huge huge difference. But is that a cultural change that is possible for every country? Mm-hmm. Is it is it one that will take? Will, will we be able to make a transition? Will people even accept yeah. that that's a, that that's something that they want to actually change, or will it take something like an alternative, which is l- literally almost the same that people feel less and less disconnect, like, squeamish about, which is cell based or, or or the fermentation? Yeah. Will those be things that people will accept for the planet? You know. I feel like this is another one of those, you know, or are the... we too addicted to hamburger? You know, like it's like, <laughs> maybe that's, that's, that's real, but to like, are we, are we okay with the cost? Well, the other problem is the messaging that happens around it. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like our world is filled with a lot of intentional division from right. more 
elite communities, if you yeah. will. I don't love that word because it's kind of overused. But, you know, you hear the joke from like the WEF, you'll have nothing and be happy. And they're the same people telling you to eat bugs. It then it's the yeah. same kind of thing. It right. turns everyone off to it and they're like, fuck that. I'm going to eat beef. Sure. You know, there's got to be some sort of middle ground, but also what's the what are the means that get to the end? Because, yeah. I mean, you talk about cattle ranching i do want to talk about that if we get to it in the in the amazon because that's something i that actually, is the main problem yeah so yeah that's one end of it but then if you're talking about maybe a more what's the term efficient way of going about getting beef well that's a really ugly end too because then you get factory farming right and mm -hmm. then i mean yeah. if you ever watch these videos and what they i mean it's horrible what they do to, to these creatures and everything it's like well what right do we have to do any of we, that we don't yeah. <laughs> I, I i think it's i think it's, it's crazy. crazy and like yeah. people laugh at i'll admit like some of these protesters around the world are out of their minds but so, a, a few of the things that they are drawing attention to i wish they would do it in a lot better not dumb ways but like yeah it's fair like you you watch a video of like whatever that is a cattle factory like yeah you don't unsee that it's horrible so no. like you know, how do we get people to do that without it becoming some sort of political football that elites use to divide us? Yeah. And how do we do it in a way that incentivizes people to want to be a part of something? When when you tell them to eat bugs, they're going to be like, fuck that. When you tell them like, oh, take this. What, what's that? Uh, what's that company? The Impossible Burger? Maybe. Maybe that's one. Of, what's the other one? Beyond. The, beyond. Yeah. Beyond uh, Meat or what? Mm -hmm. It's like. Well, the intentions there are probably great, but then before they even get to the public, people are just like, oh, they're just trying to stop us from having our freedom to eat what, eat what we want. It's like, yeah. god damn, like how do we just yeah. enjoy a burger once in a while? Like you had given a good example earlier, like maybe, you know, you're not a vegan, but you, you, yeah. eat, you eat a vegan meal once in a while, you know, just put a little bit, take a little bit of the percentage yeah. off the table. I mean, I, yeah, I could see that. Listen, it would make a huge difference. Yeah. We, we've gone from our grandparents probably eating meat once or a couple times a week and fish maybe once a week on Friday to us now eating meat three times a day. And we have major health problems as a result of that. And, and the earth is sick because of that, you know? So can we go back to where our grandparents were in terms of meat consumption, where they didn't have an epidemic of diabetes and cancer mm. and all those things. And we should enjoy those cultural, enjoy those moments where, where, where the, the animal that gave, gave, gave their life is important and you enjoy those, enjoy that, you know? And, and, but there's gotta be, there's gotta be some sacrifice involved or a reduction if you want to put it in terms of sacrifice, there's got to be some change, you know, either, either there is alternatives that people aren't, aren't, um, aren't uncomfortable with at some point, or we've got to get uncomfortable with them, or there's got to be some kind of, re and there's got to be simultaneous reduction, or we'll end up with the same outcome, right? Well, this goes into the doom and gloom versus positivity battle too. It's like, how do we yeah. message that? And, and, I, and I also agree with you on, on the politicization. Like vegans, another one of those things that people are like, are like, that's my religion now. You know, I'm going to yes. annoy everybody oh, with it, yes. and it turns every. Does it has it ever converted anybody? You know, no. It, when I when I went completely plant based for a couple of years, I never used the term vegan. I was like, you know, I've I've incorporated more plant based, felt healthier, and I'm not entirely plant based, but I 
now, but I, I incorporate it into most of my sure. meals. I try, I try to. Um, it, and actually going that way for a year taught me a lot about how I think about what a meal looks like. But there's, what do you mean by that? Like, you know, I had I had a friend that was very, very sort of vegan in terms of like, and they composed meals completely differently in terms of how they got their proteins, how they, so I, I sort of stopped thinking about, you know, uh, a meal being as a meat centric thing with a couple of sides that to, you know, there's uh, a meal could be composed of all sorts of different kinds of proteins that, that come from like beans or it's, they look like salads or didn't, you know? So that was sort of uh, a, a further understanding of food. Um, yeah, but I just think that the politicization of it is not helpful. Like the environment shouldn't be politicized or put on a spectrum. Agreed. Neither should food. Um, I don't think I don't think people should feel like their freedoms being taken away. I, I, it should feel like they're they have they have more choices, and some of the choices are are intentional. Yeah. I'm going to put intention. I, I have intention to enjoy some of the foods that I've always loved, but I have intention to also do something that I know a reduction will help. There's so much of this conversation that keeps coming full circle on stuff we're talking about. I love when that happens because that tells me we're, we're can, getting – Can I say something about yeah, fish? Yeah, please, please. Fish, because of what I've seen in Sea Shepherd and people – at Sea Shepherd and, and Sea Spiracy and because of the amount of mercury in the ocean, mm. mercury, once it's in your body, you cannot take it out. And, and we're, we're, it's something that people – there's so many people that I've heard of that went on a fish-based diet and they got really sick permanently from mercury. You because, can't get it. I don't know. No, once that. mercury is in your body and there's and the mercury in the ocean is concentrated in fish, you can, it will never be removed. You'll have mercury poisoning for forever. Really? There's If there's one thing that you could actually just cut that would help the ocean, it would be fish. Like – Maybe there's stuff that's like locally caught, like in our rivers and our lakes, or, 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 but that that fit the fish that's out there is not good for us, and it's the only it's the only wild animal that we're catching with huge drift nets. That if that was done on land, we'd never get away with it. Like, can you imagine taking a net and catching everything over this over yeah, square kilometers and just killing everything? It's crazy. We'd never get away with it. So that is, I think, something where the ocean does need to recover. And of course, we're doing a bad job of land management with all the cattle and stuff. Can we take a sidebar on this, yeah, actually? sure. How does this happen? So, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people know the buzzword, like, oh, there's mercury in the fish or whatever. Yeah. But what are we doing to like you had talked about the gold miners example earlier that's a separate thing yeah with the oceans like what are we doing that's causing the fish to have all this mercury i don't know the answer to that maybe that maybe that's a, a google thing but i think there is naturally mercury in the ocean mm. um and maybe it's maybe it's added to by some of our industrial processes um i don't think you find mercury in in uh in like our rivers and lakes to the degree you have it in the ocean. So I think it has something to do with the composition of the ocean. Yeah. I just pulled this up from the scientific American right behind us, human industrial activities, such as coal fired electricity generation, smelting and the incineration of waste ratchets up the amount of airborne mercury, which eventually yeah. finds its ways into lakes so, rivers, so it is our and fault. the ocean <laughs> where, it, which are, where it's gobbled up by unsuspecting fish and other marine life. Naturally the ocean is the biggest one where we get the most stuff. So that's where yeah. we're going to see the most effects right. of it. But yeah, that, I mean, some of that I guess is like, like the, the, you can't stop everything, but you know how do you reduce it a little bit? How do you also, yeah. you know, then 
parlay something like this into the whole, well, why are we just dropping a net and catching everything all at once? You know, why is there not some sort of process with this? Yeah. There, there is a lot of fronts here. We, we've covered so many things. But like our conversation, I think, has been, for the most part, solutions-oriented or, or, or what can we do? You know, I think the small things do matter. If uh, if if we did things in front of our friends, had like a couple of, of things that we did that were, you know, we're influ- we're influential on each other. You yes. know, I, I think that's that's something that we can each do as as change makers. I, I just feel like the the at the if we're at the point where we don't do anything because it's not worth it, like let's not even bring the plastic bags because there's plastic on the shelves, so let's not bother. That's when I think we get into a real danger zone of everybody saying or fucked and and there's no reason to to try to protect anything no reason to try to reduce anything no that's when capitalism's like nobody cares yeah. we can do whatever we want uh and government feels the same and that's when the future is already pre-written now like if, if paul watson said this is the curve for 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 whales this is they're going extinct that's the curve if he accepted that that's where we'd be but then he said no. You know, it's like this. Yes. Nothing has to be the on the the trend that is it, it's it's on. Nothing does. And it's amazing how in our examples today we've gone through a lot of times it's that small group of people like we were saying. Right. You know. So imagine what a large group of people could do. Right. But it's also or, or somebody comes up with a cool company that that changes the way we do a packaging for one thing. Yes. And it's like and that person makes so much money and does well as they should, and then everybody copies them. Right. Yeah. So now we've got tons of recycled um, uh, packaging and the next I think the next companies should be innovating in that in that yeah. direction. You know, the, the ones that uh, that are and that's happening. That's happening in fashion. That's happening. in, in maybe is it happening fast enough? But I think the young entrepreneurs that are out there that are building businesses around sustainable or green yes. or whatever, or and eventually you won't have to even call it those things. They won't even be categorized. It'll just be a part of our values. Because that's the kind of world that we want, um, and I think that's sort of where we want to want to get to. Yeah, I mean, I I had my friend Eric Olson in here for episode one nineteen, and he he's an interesting case because he started off his career in big oil. Oh wow! And then yeah. it, like very quickly moved over to the sustainability side, working with plastics, and so. If I go all in the nitty gritty of what he does, like he explained it very yeah. well in the third But he probably hour. understands it. He does because yeah. he's working with a product that we villainize like plastics and yeah. he's like, hey, there's ways to actually say, okay, we can't fix all like the whole just remove plastics or something right yeah. now. It's not realistic. But there's ways we can make this better. Yeah. And so I'm like, damn, if we can even work with some things that are like the quote unquote villains and improve yeah. them – that's a good spot to start because then the innovation overall will come up with something better than plastics down yeah. the line. And we kind of buy time doing that. But, you know, we keep coming around to how do we get people on board? How do we get people on board? How do we get people motivated? You know, you had mentioned something earlier. I think it was about Canada with World War II. Yeah. And about how you had been talking with someone, how they how they had been telling you about how they had – you know, all work together to right. get this whole machine going. Well, obviously, we did something like that here in the United yeah. States. And I had heard a story a while back about how in New Jersey, for example, and I think some other states. And, and the gentleman was Seth Klein. If you want to want to look up his book, it's called. Uh, um, oh, he's a book on yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's called the. Well, we could look it up. It's, it's but it has the word war in it, and it's about the climate emergency and compares it to World War Two. His group is called, I think, the climate the climate emergency unit. Got it. Okay, so um, I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah. But 
if you if you look at like that's interesting because if if you look at like what they did on even just an every night thing on the eastern seaboard right we had all these u-boats out there these german u-boats yeah. that were on the coast and so people pre-internet era banding together like we were talking about if everyone were standing around a fire what they sure. would all do you know not fighting about on the internet people shut out all their lights at eight o'clock at night right and so that the boats couldn't see on the shore people worked together everyone yeah. started working in the factories and the hospitals and stuff like that mm-hmm. or going out into the field obviously and fighting the war <clears throat> and what strikes me is you tie it all together it's like for some reason human beings have this need to have a cause that sometimes ends in some sort of destruction hopefully because they're ending some sort of evil that yeah. you wish never happened in the first place but like Nazi Germany did yeah. you know they get behind a cause and then and then suddenly everything goes away and they feel the desperation and you look at society now yeah we've had these endless wars yeah. in this country for example over the past 80 years but you know we stopped the draft after Vietnam they're over there they're yeah. not here we as the American empire have never felt threatened or right. something. And so in a lot of ways, it's it's coalescing with this time where people are also losing spirituality. They're yeah. lacking meaning and they don't have like a survival instinct. Right. The, the, the battles or and the community demon- or a collective yes. instinct. Yes. So, th- so there, I think there's two interesting ang- ways to look at the American dream. And I'm speaking as a Canadian because we share the same we, we sure. share that 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 dream in, in in a way that opportunity dream. You know, there's this idea that uh, in, the, in the American dream, that, like you're an individual, you're a cowboy, you're an entrepreneur, you're gonna like you know everybody can make it to the top. But look at the greatest things that this country has ever done, like the moon landing, or if you believe that happened, or like <laughs> I wasn't gonna say it, I wasn't gonna or, say it, or just like all like you know like all the great. Uh, <laughs> The great things that uh, that that have happened that that you look back and you you look to times when the country rallied, whether it was a war or whether it was uh, you know Hoover Dam or or just these are collective efforts yes. where the country came together and they were not operating as individualist influencers trying to get their follower count up. They were they were working. Uh, they were like schooled in sciences. They were like you know it was a country of engineers and 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 people that were building. Together, not, not, yeah, of course, they were capitalists and they were like people that made tons of money with the Rockefellers. But for the most part, pe- the, the government was actually a good participant in this too, you know? And so um, let's look at that aspect of, of the American dream that's been a little bit forgotten in this very cowboy. It's almost too extreme cowboy and forgotten yes. the collectivist and because uh, that's communism, but you know, it's by some people's estimations, not that's no. like that's a that's a part of how you get great things done uh, together. Yeah, and that's such I, I I'm glad you brought that up because that's such a stupid cop out to to that shit. Communism Agreed. doesn't allow anyone to or, win. Or Everyone, socialism. yeah, exactly. Yeah, call it the same thing for the moment. I know yeah. it's got slight differences, but still, like the basic communism, socialism. Yeah, it doesn't allow anyone to win. It doesn't give incentive. It just creates very few winners who then tell everyone, "This is what you're going to do. Go fuck yourself." When you're talking about collectivism, yeah. you are getting something out of that. Mm-hmm. You can also be like the smarter. You might be the Dax da Silva in the room who comes up with the best idea and then is rewarded for doing that and working hard and getting it through. Mm-hmm. But you're doing a good thing like your company, Lightspeed. It, behind the scenes, it helps people run their business in in a great way and a simpler way with – 
at the time what was burgeoning technology. Right. That's a win for society. Yeah. There's nothing – and, like, it, you keep talking about your team and how much, like, it's very clear, like, you had a lot of trust in them. Like, yeah. how much you meant – that meant to you being able to build something with a bunch of other people. Well, they're the ones who implemented that. So yeah. they're a part of the – that's a mini society right sure. there. Sure. Yeah. Why can't greater society be the same thing? Yeah. I think it has to be, you know, it, it can't just be like there is ways so that there isn't the there isn't only rewards for for the, for for a few uh, in those situations where there are winning ideas as well. You know, the the that is it shouldn't be so concentrated, you know, mm-hmm. it, it should be something that that when we create value and create when we create wealth everybody benefits but then so there is a benefit to for, to doing things together but then also people might do things for the betterment of 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 society elevating uplifting you know the way that that these mega projects happened we have some mega projects in front of us the ones we've talked about on, on climate there's other things that we could be doing for you know like um, infrastructure in both our countries you know there's things that could be <laughs> you know things that could be done um that uh, th- that are just, you know, waiting for some leadership, you know, and, and yeah. I think I think really great leadership is a really there's a big vacuum there. Uh, that's like that. That's I think the difference when you see countries that are really thriving when there are selfless leaders that that are that are doing that really have the greater good in mind and the greater good of society and are thinking collectively as opposed to countries where it's obvious that there's that there's somebody that's doing it for to hoard power keep power maintain power um and uh and and then you know siphon out wealth to the people that are supporting them you know that's there's a big difference in 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 how when i see from a conservation perspective operating in in those different countries uh, one person again one person one leader can make such a big difference to for their people who's the who's been a highlight of a person to work with who has serious pull in some country somewhere um <laughs> I, I don't like how long it's taken <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what else, what I will say because uh, I don't I don't know that leaders are doing what they need to mm. you know in any in any country but I do see that when private citizens um, when private citizens do things like big sanctuaries or, or ranger programs and, and and the local people are really responding government come does come in and yes. and wants to be a part of the success so we did a protect you know we committed several million dollars to protection of the St. Lawrence River but then later the go- and I've heard the government in Quebec has seen what we're doing they came in with they can come in with so much more money you know yeah. when they see the people care they came in with 80 no they came in with 880 million for for nature across the province you know so because they could get a w but i mean fuck it we'll take it you know it's huge, right? So, yeah. and, and and Canada also for the when the thirty by thirty announcement, another seven hundred, um, you know, million. So it's it's the government does like to be a part of these stories. Like whenever we make an announcement, they're always there trying to be a part of the story because they see if people are responding and people are caring, they want to be a part of it. So it's almost like they're that leaders can be 
formed and shaped by again by yes. our priorities. Hundred percent. What were you and Paul at the UN talking about? That was what like seven eight months ago, something right. like that. What was that all about? Yeah, so we did we did an initial sort of in, uh, investment in Jungle Keepers for the first couple of years. We expanded their reserve with an area D uh, to their to to the reserve, expanded to two hundred fifty square kilometers in miles. I'm not sure, but. Uh, <laughs> And then set up the ranger program and so on. But now we have, we have this expansion was three and a half million over the next five years for them to really go for it in terms of adding new areas, um, building out the ranger program, adding technology. There's a, uh, a, a an animal rescue for those animals that end up in the market so that mm. to bring them back to the reserve. There's uh, a program for to teach Amazonian culture in terms of the food. Use culture as an education tool, um, mm. led by uh, one amazing person that's part of the team named Roy. And then there's another project. Uh, a lot of these projects, these little uh, side projects, are being uh, female-led as well. Uh, so there's another project for another reserve to to, to come in and be integrated. Uh, so there's a couple of additional um, things that we've added to the budget, but I think it gives them another five-year runway. And I think what's important in terms of what we've learned is you give somebody uh, the ability to plan for five years and they're not in survival mode. Mm, you know, they're, yes. you know, Paul's out there, he's fundraising so that they can go faster and protect the entire river. Uh, you know, we can't afford to, to, to do, you know, today, $20 million in additional grants just for jungle keepers to protect the entire length of the river. We're, we're doing well, but there is a time sensitivity. So he's out there fundraising, but he doesn't have to worry about operating jungle keepers for the next five years. Cause we got that covered. I mean, that's and that's great because also like you think about guys like Paul and some of the other leaders you've talked about who who Age of Union is involved with. It's like you want them where it is too. Yeah. You want them having to spend as – and I know I've talked to Paul about this a bunch, but you know he understands how important it is to do the fundraising and, and be in front of people. Like it is a part of it, but yeah. you want him to be able to do that in the most efficient way so that his time is less going to that and more going to actually putting the plan into motion down there. Yeah, and I think it's also we are learning as we go. Uh, I know this last year he's you know tried to do a lot of to try to get into fundraising because he's very convincing, he's very charismatic. Very, yes. But he does need to be in, on the ground. You know, there's invasions happening. I don't know if he talked about the invasions in his in his uh, his time here, but I don't think he did. No, the very first few months where we where we protected that area D there was a, there was a group of former cocaine farmers that set up a village in our, in the middle of the, the new protected area. It was huh. not, it was not news. They wanted to like break to us. They're like you're, the newly protected <laughs> lands got a full setup. Don't mind us. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Well, what's, well, what, well, what's happened is that as the government um, cracks down on, on, on the coat, on the coca, Mm. They blame the every oh, the farmers get blamed, right? It's not uh, it's not the cartel, yeah. it's the farmers. So then they're on the run because they take all the blame, and then they end up they're like, oh, let's go hide in the jungle, set up a let's set up a a, uh, a village. Nobody will find us. We'll do our own thing. And I'm like, that's the middle of our reserve. <laughs> it's an ecologically <laughs> sensitive, very very uh, mega diverse area. You, this is not a great place for your village. You know you. <laughs> That's the challenge is that those, those people have kids, they have families. We need to relocate them somewhere where they're going to be successful. It's obviously not in this super ecologically important spot, but now we have a responsibility to move them. So these are the kinds of things where Paul's got to be there. Dina's got to be there. Like the team's got to be on the ground because these are very, these are very real things that are not, uh, 
they're not easily solved. Yeah, you know, we we keep talking a little bit today, like on the edges, about some of the indigenous communities who you're working with in, in some of these places. But, you know, I, I think it's been mentioned a touch. I just wanted to go at it a little more. Like, what are, because you're, you're having, you get the chance to, to have a lot of one on one communication with them when you're there. And obviously, guys like Paul are there every day. But, like, what do they think about not just what's happening in their own environments? You know, what, what do they think or even, also know about some of the consumption problems that we as humanity are causing around the world and what do they say about that right so those those societies only take what they need for for their communities and so it's very different very different model than than we have which is like stockpiling commodities and a lot of waste you know so we're we, we're we're in a model that they don't you know they don't relate to it's uh it's a different situation in every country right because the the way that uh that indigenous people have exist in in societies is, is different their relationship in canada is is very different from uh indigenous leadership for example in the congo where people you know local people indigenous people are are one and the same you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's a and it's it's a different story and like for example in north america um, in U in the U S and Canada, there's specific, uh, indigenous first nations as, as, yes. or it, as we call it in Canada territories. Um, and that's, that's sort of, that's sort of different even by province. Like for example, in British Columbia, they never ceded their land. And so there's a different, there's a different, they never what? They never ceded their land. They ne- there was never a fight. There was never a, uh, a moment oh, where ceded. right? Yeah. So there's a there's a different relationship than in the east where there there were when when the colonization happened there there was a different sort of dynamic between the colonizers and the indigenous people there. So there's a different there's there's different levels of disruption to indigenous societies in different parts of the country where where in the east there's more they're more a part of uh regular society and there's more intact indigenous communities in the in the west uh Mm. in in terms of functioning as a nation and they have therefore potentially more more preserved traditional knowledge and that's also the case in places like the amazon or in or in the or in drc or in indonesia where Traditional knowledge can still be learned from because there's more of it left intact. Uh, and there's different levels of respect for Indigenous people in different countries. You know, the relationship here is is, is difficult uh, in, in the United States where, you know, where the history is, is not great. Yeah. And, and it isn't great in Canada either. So... I think it's, it's, it's a moment where we need to learn from them more than ever. Uh, and that's like, there's so much to be learned from in that journey that we have to take back to a place of harmony with nature. Yeah. I I had heard a a quote that I've cited on different podcasts. That's a little bit out of context, but I'm going to bring it into context here. It was from the show Homeland. I don't know if you ever watched that, Mm -hmm. but show about some lady in the CIA constantly fighting, you know, wars and terror. But there was a really nasty terrorist in the show who did happen to make a fairly good quote that 
that made sense when he was talking to one of the CIA guys who he had captive about you know their differences, and he said, "America hates what it can't understand." Sure. And I'm gonna I'm gonna edit that quote and make it more general and say like society, not even necessarily hates, but doesn't care about or acknowledge what mm-hmm. it can't understand. Yeah. And I'll be the first to tell you. I can't understand what it's like to live off the land as mm-hmm. an indigenous person whose family was on this same land 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. No. I don't understand that. But what I'd like to think I have is some empathy for that and the fact that you know, perhaps maybe the answer isn't having multinational corporations come in and <laughs> ruin mm-hmm. the land that's already in some cases been taken from them. But I, I think a lot of a lot of people it kind of comes back to the capitalism thing we were talking about. There, that isn't really a thought. The thought is, okay, we see resource. Resource mean money. Money mean good. Let's go get. Yeah, and and they're they're in something that's much more circular, or that's what yes. the tra- traditional uh, way was was to have this circular relationship with with uh, with with nature, and we are sort of like more export extract. Yes. and that's why progress with with working with these indigenous indigenous nations when we're doing conservation progress happens at the speed of trust because mm. they don't trust the way we go about things and so when we come in and say we want to help you know they don't know who age of union is they don't know they don't they don't trust the west the western sure. philosophy so they're like okay well so how do they know our intentions are really aligned with theirs? So it's it's a slow process. Sometimes for us, where we're so scheduled, especially me with startup DNA, you know, that's it's and that's what I've tried to do with Age of Union is infuse it with startup DNA, which means a fast pace, which is operating at the uh, for me it's progress um, at the pace of urgency, mm. and and because we want to ally so. so because we want to ally for all for what we believe are the right reasons with with local indigenous local and indigenous people to create meaningful change on the ground, we have to respect that for them progress moves at the speed of trust because we don't have trust. Nobody do, nobody does have trust because of what's happened. Well, you were talking. To, this just reminds me. You were telling me something off camera. I think when we were in the car today about how Captain Paul Watson's expertise before doing any of this was communications Mm -hmm. and how he's talked about how that's the most critical thing to getting the word out and stuff like that. But, you know, and feel free to expand upon that as well in in answering your question here. But it it does does make me wonder from the outside, you know, how much of this does come back to the most simple human things. In this case, communication, understanding, Having an ability to go back and forth, maybe you don't have the same idea for everything, but how do you reach that common ground? It seems to me like that's what – that's essentially at the core of what AG Union does because when – as you were just explaining, when you go into these places, you have to understand where they're coming from and, and show them why you can make sense for them. So people ask me what's the, what's the first – what's the most important thing uh, that you need to – Exemplify and the, the the thing you need to prioritize the most when you're a leader, and I tell them the, that the first thing for me is listening, mm-hmm. and that's almost the opposite of what people think that they want that that uh, what uh, what a leader should do. A leader should be somebody that's saying a lot. A leader should be somebody that's uh, that's projecting some type A, alpha sort of 
you know, energy. A real, a real, real leadership, and that's what we—that's the stance we take when we are engaging in places we don't understand anything about—is listening. You know, to go to to the eight pro, eight of the ten projects is to go listen, go listen to the local people, the indigenous people, folks like like Paul who are allies of those people. Is to listen and to and to understand, and that's how you build trust. It's not by talking a lot, uh, and then and then incorporating what you've heard uh, into. The plan that everybody's going to come up with and that you can support and hearing their plan they understand the situation like i said the social political economic reality of an area that's so specific can be so specific for even that part uh of the of, of the area and that's that is how i think you build the trust and how you build the long-term solutions that that people buy into 100 percent, man i had brian mcmonicle in here last year he is one of the best defense attorneys in the country. He represented Bill Cosby. Don't hold that against him. When you operate at the level that those people operate, failure is not an option. Losing is not an option. Is, I think, the greatest evidence of man's inhumanity to man. But remember this. Jurors were being asked to make a decision about whether he did it. And that case was, at least the way we tried it, the time we tried it, I thought a very defensible case on the facts. You know, you want to kind of bring jurors to their best and make them realize that in a few short moments when the case is given to them, they're all that stands between him and a conviction for a crime he didn't commit, is the argument. The jury of 12 people there, they know this is Bill Cosby in that room. They know Bill Cosby don't have a public defender. Defending. Like, you're a subtle guy. You're not like a flashy dresser. But they know that suit probably doesn't cost $2, and it's not from Joseph A. Bank. That's right. You get up there, though, and you look this jury in the eyes as Bill Cosby's attorney, and you said something to the effect of... And actually quit after he got him off, and then Cosby got found guilty after. But he also represented Meek Mill and mm -hmm. got him out of that situation in Philly, which was really bad. But, you know, he was brought on by Michael Rubin and Jay-Z. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking with him about, you know, some of these guys he works with, and he was raving about Jay-Z and what a what a genius that guy is and, and how incredible he is, you know, leading his various businesses. Mm -hmm. And when I asked him about that, your answer just reminded me of this, but when I asked him what separates him, he says, when you go into a meeting with that guy, he don't talk. Mm. But he's listening to every single thing that's said and processing it. He mm -hmm. doesn't say many words, even at the end, and then he makes decisions based on all the evidence that he's been presented. And I think he literally said, like, that's what makes him such a great leader. And it's so true because I think – you know, you do have to be, you got to be able to talk to, yeah. you, you got to be able to, to get your points across. To, Synthesize what you've learned. Yes. But everybody that's been in the room with you should feel that you, yes. that they were heard. Exactly. You don't have to, you don't have to come up with, if you're the leader and you have to make the decision, you don't have to make a decision that makes everybody happy. But if everybody feels heard, whether it's a company or it's, or it's a situation on the ground with conservation, if people can, you can, you give an opportunity for people to follow you when when they when they feel when they know that they've been heard and that you've listened and it's 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 so funny that that the people that are perceived as the strongest leaders are not the people that are you know going off and uh, and and filling the airwave uh, of a meeting with their own voice it's the one, and obviously in this case scenario we're supposed to be talking so we're like we're we're talking a lot but i mean in in a meeting where you're where you're trying to bring people together and you're trying to 
create solutions and be the leader, that's that's it's so interesting that it's the not the non talking that actually projects that that respect. Yeah. And what what were some of the things like cuz it sounds like you talk with Captain Paul Watson about this a lot. Like what what was he saying when he was talking about like communication over the years with what he does? Cuz obviously like we've talked about some of the things he's been able to pull off, but it seems to me like you were more getting at the the backroom type stuff dealing with politicians is what he was referring to. He doesn't re- Yeah, I, I, politicians is is not necessarily his first customer in terms of communications <laughs> i think he gives a fuck he does ultimately but it, but that's well maybe he doesn't enough because he's banned in so many countries he's banned in his own country he can't even come to canada he was born there wait he's banned from canada yeah why is the, he banned the from seal canada? hunt in fact all the sea shepherd captains um are, are banned from canada most of them are banned from canada because of the seal hunt what, it, what explain which is so funny because the seal hunt is now they, the government's done a 180 on this seal hunt that was happening off newfoundland the sea shepherd captains were protecting seals standing in, in between sealers and the seals on the ice flows in, in newfoundland and got criminal convictions uh from from that and also with the japanese whalers made complaints to canada about about uh, the sea shepherd vessels and and also have are trying to go after the captain in and have an extradition um have something for extradition for extraditing him so there's all these these uh these these things that everybody either doesn't want him in the country or wants if they if he enters the country they want him sent over to their country i think for communications what what the genius has been for 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 sea shepherd and and for the captain and for many of the others that have been good at this like jane goodall dave suzuki is they've used the media and they've used how people consume media and they they use the the news cycle and journalists and and embed journalists in their operations so that others can tell their story and and can can show what's show the reality of what's happening because people are not there yeah on the high seas when whales are being harpooned and if they were brought on into that situation through the media uh, and they were shown what's happening with dolphins, then suddenly, remember, people care, then the government cares. And, yep. that, and, that, and that's how you create change. That's how in seven months after the release of COT, we were, we were able to get the court to, to force the government to act. Because once, once it's exposed to people, then people want answers. And, and if, if you're good at working the media, like, like some of these some of these great conservationists are, it will bother elected officials and it'll bother people because it's, it's a thorn in their side uh, with, and it, and it degrades their public image to the point where something has to be done to get it off. Yeah. Get it off the news cycle. It's killing us. Right. They're like, they're, they're in their war rooms. They're like, this is killing us. We got to like get rid of Captain Paul off the news, you know? So there's all these tactics that they're that they're using in the in service of activism, where they may have may have been used to publicize product or publicize uh, something or create a scandal. I think there's. I wish I could remember what they were, but the things that sell a story are something like sex scandal. Uh, if we looked it up, the four things of communication. You know, uh, there's four of them, and and you're like, yeah, those are the four things that uh, that are that are essential elements of any great story. And if you can get all four of those things into uh the story then then you then the media picks it up 
You know, like for example, they'd have narrative, purpose, relatable, and aha. Uh-huh. No, these moments. ones are more scandalous. They were like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it didn't yeah. sound like what you were saying. So uh, I'll, we'll, we'll have to get those uh, for you. But but yeah, for example, that's why they had Pamela Anderson involved with uh, with the with the seal hunt thing because that. that was the sex, and then Love there was the, the scandal, and then there was the, the so it's there's there's all this they, they create something that's got enough drama for the media to be like can't resist it, you know, and that that's how it ends up being on the news and that's how it ends up being something that the media can't let go of well here's the other thing too and i can only speak from the ones who i know which in this case the the conservationists who are really out there doing it who i know well outside of now knowing you are paul and ryan with jungle keepers and vet paul but i know in speaking with them in the past they're especially paul because of his experience with discovery channel and what clusterfuck Mm -hmm. that was you know they're very very careful about getting media out there that documents it. This is what's happening. This is what it is and not taking leaps with things too. Because look, if you're on the ground every day and you're passionate about something, you know, shit's going down. You you can, it's, you're human. You can take a leap with something. And like the thing that frustrates me sometimes is that today in how ubiquitous media is, there are so many narratives on so many things that it seems to me a lot of you know, dated my friends that I talk to, like day-to-day viewers, they're suspicious of almost anything they yeah. see, whether it's for good or bad, because they don't know what to believe. And yet, you know, at some point you have to, as a human being, accept the fact like, yeah, you can't see everything. You're not there. You have yep. to take it for what it is. But, you know, you also have to find the people who, in communicating the story, maintain the honesty of the arc as well. And there's a risk to that because, you know, there's – I had a story – uh, and I'll leave the countries and the and the, the the specific captain out of the the story, but there if you get a great journalist that's that's got real integrity and you bring them onto uh, bring them into a situation with an African nation where there's really good things happening uh, on the on the ship and on the vessel and and they find something that that African government that's, is doing that is not so. Mm. And they is not so great, and the, of course everybody, the, the you know the, the captain and uh, and and the government want a certain story written to show yes. the, the positive things. But in the in the in the in the the great journalists also will find other things that maybe aren't so favorable to the storyline, and you might get kicked out of that nation because mm-hmm. that journalist writes. You can't control what what they want to write about. You can't order your own story the way you want it to to go. So. Having people with integrity brought onto your ship or brought into your into your jungle, your forest, it's not always in your control. And so, really great in- people with integrity will write what they <laughs> what they will. Yeah, and you hope that it doesn't, you know, get the get the flower lost among the trees, you know. And and that's that's interesting though because journalists look they're incentivized from a capitalism structure to tell a story that is going to be able to sell the most as well. I understand that. They have a job to do, but also they're, they should be incentivized to tell the truth, which in this case, those two things, the one you're pointing out, yeah. those two things can kind of meet right there, which is unfortunate. And they can then, talk about the positive of what's happening, yeah. but they can also talk about some corruption that they noticed. And guess what? We're wired towards negativity as humanity. And that's maybe the story. There's two stories and, and that story is maybe the the lead or or, or it's the part that 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 gets people upset, you know, yeah. that uh, that they didn't want to have written about, or they felt was not what they wanted presented. So it maybe it might might end up preventing some good from happening. 
for the next little while and, uh, as people heal yeah. from that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing too. You know? People want everything or nothing and we don't really live in a world like that. It's yeah. a complex place. But I think those are the risks because the benefits are so huge that to, to get these stories written for, about places that people can't, regular people can't go uh, and don't have access to, to sort of have the media write about that credibly it's always worth the risk and and in the grand scheme of things even that story even though it was even even though it was short term harmful to the relationships involved long term maybe that did need to get written about in terms of in terms of what the other things that they found were and maybe people did know about did need to know about those things and maybe long term it did help shut down some of those those other aspects yeah, I mean, we talk about these things. We talk with terms like media, government, companies, whatever. And there are these ideas. They're they're a thing, yeah. right? But there's people. But who there's make people. Up. Yeah, yeah. There's people. There's relationships. There's people with good intentions that maybe aren't in, at fault for those mm. those 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 things that are that aren't going a hundred percent for now the way yes. they want. They don't want to talk about those things until maybe they can improve them. But the journalist found something that's not great yet. Yeah, and now that relationship is damaged with that person. That was a good, was that was a that was a good guy or a good girl, you know? Yeah, it's it's tough. It's it's a tough it's a tough battle. I mean, I've I've had some journalists in here, and we we talk about that, you know, with their sources, which is right, exactly yeah. what you're talking about here. And it's like, you know, like Joby Warwick did an amazing job laying out the difficulty of like dealing with intelligence mm. when he was here because he's you know he's been the national security reporter at the Washington Post forever yeah and a, a lot of sources he deals with are from three letter agencies mm. and they will constantly every story come to them and say if you put this out people are going to die yeah and then right. you know yeah. and I know the media gets a lot of shit deservedly so on plenty <clears throat> of things but like at the core of this you you do have you know some good journalists who are going in these rooms and they have to make the decision are they fucking with us or what what's the bigger deal here yeah you know and it gets it gets real murky but you know that's also why you want to find like i talk about journalists or humanity being more bent towards negative stories it's just how we're wired you know yeah run from bear to cave so mm -hmm. we live right to see tomorrow but you want to find the things where hopefully it can sell the the positive message. And that's why, you know, when I, I, we've been talking about Paul and some of your guys today, but someone like Jane Goodall, mm -hmm. in addition to Captain Paul, who's, who's been at this for so long, like, yes, they, they do have to sell the, some of the dangers that we face and stuff yeah. like that, no doubt. But, you know, they're such beautiful people and yeah. they've done so much good and they, and we can, by the way, Jane Goodall making documentaries ages ago, mm -hmm. showing us on the ground what yeah. happens. Like we need, that's what it feels like you're doing with all these documentaries across the projects that are bringing home like that, yeah. you know, that planet earth week on national geographic every to, to everyone with all these projects. For sure. I mean, the, the, the documentary films, it's something we didn't know how to do. We just started to do them. We did the first one, the St. Lawrence River. Well, the first one was actually the 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 one that you showed a little bit of, Heart of the Mission, which is yes. us meeting Paul's project, Jungle Keepers, six minute film. Then we did one on the St. Lawrence River, which was thirty five minutes, almost like a meditation on this river that literally goes by my house, by by the by the Lightspeed office in in, in Montreal. Most of Canada grew up along this river mm. uh, in the early settlements. This is like the lifeblood. Uh, it's twenty percent, twenty five percent of the world's fresh water. It's got everything from whales to 
almost every species. Yeah, there's blue whales wow. in the St. Lawrence River. I don't think people realize how big the river gets at, at its mouth. Holy shit. Crazy amounts of ecosystems and estuaries. And we don't even notice it. We mm. just, it's so in the background, but it's, so, and you literally go uh, an hour from Montreal, hour and 15 minutes, and it looks like the Florida Everglades. And people don't even know that. We just think we almost. It looks like the Florida Everglades. Yeah, there's like grasses, tall grasses. And it looks completely wild, like an wow. hour from the city. And this is an area that floods completely after the winter melt. Whole islands disappear. There's like incredible heron nests up in the trees where like of these silver maples. It's just magical. Actually, I'm going to be going there next week. We're going to do a three-day tour with Nature Conservancy of Canada, which is one of our projects, to look at all the restorations that have happened over the last couple of years that we've been funding. So that's almost like a recap of where our money's gone. They, they, they fund about 30 to 40 pro- smaller restorations along the river. Uh, with our with our funds every every year, a lot of them in in uh, in partnership with with indigenous nations because there's many mm. nations along the river, and so why was I telling you this? <laughs> I forget, but I was pretty entranced yeah. with that. <laughs> oh, the films, yeah. yeah so <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm starting to picture all this shit in my yeah, head. I yeah. forget where we're. Well, you got to you got to see the film. It was our it was our first real like longer one, uh, and it's it's a little it's it's not. It doesn't have a real storyline. It's it's a mm. bit of a meditation. There's beautiful, it, beautiful scenery. It's kind of to make you fall in love with the river. Mm. And it's such a part of Quebec culture and Canadian culture that I think it really does that. I think it really makes people, and there is Indigenous people in it that talk about the importance of the river and and water and uh, and women's relationship with the river in in, the, in that community. So so we started there. We did caught as I told you, and we're really proud that of won the awards out- too. Yeah, it's yeah. won some awards. Uh, Corridor about the Congo project is coming out. When does that come out? Uh, that's coming out in the fall. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, awesome. we'll premiere it during TIFF in Toronto, and hopefully we're going to be doing an LA premiere early next year. We'll pump that here too. Yeah, I really want to because it's you know because it's African. Uh, in locally, lo- a local-led African huge success story, uh, or it's going to be a massive success story as it's sort of, everybody gets these land titles. It's already protecting 640,000 hectares in this plan, but now it's going to get bigger and hectares? bigger. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have those either? Okay. What, what, what's that? I don't know. Convert that to a square... Mile in uh, on, okay. in, on Google. I don't know. All right, we'll it's huge. It's massive. Um, but yeah, so so there's th- there's that film, uh, and I would like to do an LA premiere to show. That's another. That, see, this is like we're talking about like excluding people on the right uh, uh, end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from the conversation, I feel like there's like who are the black people in the black community that are looked as looked at as environmental icons? Has that has that community not felt like they're a part of the movement either? Yeah. So. To show um, these leaders, Dominic and Anastasia and all this team uh, in Congo, I'd love to have at the LA premiere a lot of the African diaspora and and the black creative communities invited so that everybody feels a part, and of course everybody, but everybody feels a part of the the movement, um, which maybe they haven't seen people that look like them in, in, in the movement as much, so... And then in terms of like those are the th- those are the docs, but we've been doing some long form, but that's mostly supporting filmmakers that have been doing like three years of, of work. I don't know if Paul talked about Trevor and Melissa that did I don't think so, a no. film called Wildcat in the same area on the Las Piedras, and in that, the Amazon, yeah, in the Peruvian Amazon, it, or same same area, 
And that's that was on Amazon Prime. That that film got bought for twenty million dollars. Holy shit! Uh, in wow. order in order to film in order to finish the editing on their film, they they helped, we we hired them to do that short six minute film. Uh, and so that's how we got to know Trevor and Melissa. And that, that was a huge success story for a nature, nature uh, documentary to sell for that much. But it's because of this incredible story. So just in short, the story is the story of Harry, this young – I talk to Harry every week. He's amazing, amazing young conservationist. His new thing is called Emerald Arch, and he's looking to work in Ecuador that we were talking about earlier. But so this story is he's this young UK um, – kid him and his all his friends graduate high school they have no plan so they all join the army they get shipped shipped off to afghanistan and he sees some of he sees somebody blown up in front of him um mm. on and, and it's just one of those things that you go you go into the theater of war and you come out shattered you know you saw somebody literally lose their life and he goes to the amazon basically basically whether or not it's to sort of you know, you know, I, I'm not sure if, if it was to necessarily kill himself, but like it, it was, it was, he, he was sort of despondent and wanted to escape. Uh, and, um, he didn't, he, he wanted to not have his family see all of that pain. So he kind of escaped like many people do with pain, uh, and, and put themselves into some of these conservation, uh, projects that are, disconnected from the world around them. You know, it is a little bit of uh, a way to heal. Mm. So what he, he meets there, another young woman who, as you can see from the movie Wildcat also is struggling with some, some things in her past and she's running a, a, a wildlife rescue. Cause what happens is after they deforest an area or after they do hunting, there's baby animals that end up in the market. And so these, mm. these animals are recovered by some of these, these rescues. Like we have one at Jungle Keepers. There's this other one called Oja Nueva that's in the film. And so he has a relationship with this, with this, uh, this, this young animal rescue person, um, Samantha, and he saves two baby ocelots. Mm. Uh, and it's him sort of helping these ocelots learn how to hunt because he becomes their mother that he really heals himself. So it's a story about PTSD. It's a story about mental health. It's a story about healing that also teaches about the situation for animals and the situation for the forest. So that's why I love this movie and why, why, why it was so, why the response from Amazon prime and so on was so strong is because that human story overlaid with what's happening is so brilliant. And so I'm, I'm working, I'm helping them on their next film. There's another film that we're doing that's feature length. So those are two projects to come. And then we're also like, our teams are out in the field right now. We just came back from Trinidad doing these, hoping to launch a short film series of like seven minute films come, come this fall for our two year anniversary. Just, just to get like little, little tidbits on putting people on the front lines of our projects so that we can take them there. Kind of like Captain Paul and, and folks did before me, bringing people into places they don't usually get to go. Yeah, it's it's powerful yeah. and and exactly what you said right there, the human element to it. When you can add that touch. I mean, that's look, you have to entertain. You have to pull people in. It's not yeah. a dirty thing to say. You, no. you you have to take these things that you're passionate about and bring them to people but package it in a way that makes them relate to it immediately upon seeing it because we know how fast people click off stuff when it's they It's got to compete like with everything else that they yes. that they could be entertained by. Exactly. You know. So that's 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 awesome, man, and, and I'm I'm really like I said earlier, like I'm really glad that you're 
that you're funding a lot of this and you kind of look at it through that human lens and, and what you're doing with your second act in life here. It's, it's like, a, it's an amazing thing. I wish there were a lot more people like you, but before we got out of here, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about something I'd been texting you about last month that we've all seen here, here in America that mm-hmm. I kind of on purpose have not looked yep. up a ton because I wanted to talk to you about it. But you know, these forest fires going on yeah. in Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll put pictures in the corner of the screen, videos in the corner of the screen for people who didn't see it, but you know, New York City, Philadelphia, all these cities on the East Coast, and I heard there was shit in Chicago too. Like they were turning orange yeah. a month or two ago, whatever it was. And, you know, it was apparently because the air was so dirty and coming down from Canada. Like what I had heard on the news at the time was that this there are these wildfires that happen naturally in Canada around this time of year, but it was way exacerbated this year. Why why was that? Well, certainly things are getting hotter. Uh and and it and it is it is a it is a situation that we're going to we're unfortunately going to see more as as climate gets hotter. But why why is it that that this is possible on this scale? And I and I spoke last week with uh, with the Rewild CEO uh, Wes Seacrest. That's this is Leonardo DiCaprio's foundation, conservation minded, good human, you know. So, and his his organization is very very much like um, his and Wes's and Russ's organization is very much like Age of Union. We really believe on on the ground, locally led projects. I think it's the new wave of of conservation is this style. That's why we relate to each other, and I always spend time with with those folks. We talked about this, this, and we just wrote an article about about the one of the real causes of this is because we've allowed old growth to be cut on in our forests on the on the the, the BC coast. That there's a huge fight over old growth. It start goes back to Clackwood Sound when I my protest at seventeen. We've we're down to we're down to three percent left of old growth in BC, and probably even less on the east coast where. We've probably cut the forest multiple times. There's no, almost no old growth. The old growth is what would stop these wildfires because it's it's got it adds the diversity in the mature trees that this would not happen on the scale. Wildfires are natural, but they would be much much more contained. Because imagine all of the old growth gone out of the forest. What are you left with? Is second growth that's like kindling. Mm. So when it's so dry, the whole thing goes up like kindling. If you've got if you you've got old growth in the mix there, uh, then that doesn't happen. So that it's a consequence of of what we've what we've done to these forests, mm. and so I think that conservation has to is has to be looked at as part of the solution as part of the solution to this and how we manage forests because we're unfortunately now because of what we've done we are in a position where we now have to manage how we interact with these forests and how we support them. The boreal forest on the on the east coast is is very, very at risk. It grows, mu- grows much slower, has much more s- cold weather to deal with. It's much more slow growth. So to remove the old growth like we have creates a situation where wildfire can happen in a region that's massive. Mm. Uh, there's a whole, there's if you map it to how big the city of Montreal or is the island of Montreal, it's like this huge, huge area. So I think that we need to start to really seriously look, and actually we're going to start a campaign next month. I think I mentioned it on old growth in BC, but I think we need the same kind of campaign on, in the East. We've got to support uh, the re- what's remaining to prevent this from, from happening because people are at risk. Obviously animals on a huge scale go without habitat and it, it does regrow, but it doesn't 
it, but it like next spring you'll see green again, but to get the size of tree we talked about in the Congo, yeah. seven years, you'll have a full tree. It doesn't happen like that in Northern Canada. It, yeah. Those trees are going to take time to grow. So we, we have to give our forests a chance by, by leaving some of that old growth in there uh, and, and thinking about what, what, what are the steps that we take as, yeah. the, as the climate warms. And we got to figure out ways to create convenient, well-priced alternatives to certain products that we use that may be may be the causers of us cutting down cutting so many down, trees. Yeah, because yeah, I mean... We're talk- wasteful. We don't even think about it. We are. And in, yeah. in, in talking with Paul, though, and we've hit on this on a few podcasts since then, but like people don't realize, like looking in the Amazon, they're like, oh, you cut down a tree, just plant a new one. It'll grow back. Well... No. If you go to first of all, it no. Will, but it's not the same use no, though either. No. You like some I think one of his maybe you know who it is, but one of one of his other main funders is is a is a architect in New York. Yeah. And he he talks about like, yeah, if I use like a twenty year old tree in the Amazon and I use that as the foundation of a house, it's gonna fall apart inside of a decade. Right. So like you can't just like these things have been there thousands and thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of years. You can't just cut it down and be like, oh we'll plant some new ones. It just doesn't work like that. No. No. So I think we gotta be we gotta be conscious um of, yeah. of how we how we do these how we do these things because look at how look at how much those wildfires have affected health and habitat and it's it's another outcome that we're responsible for you know if you if you just take a look at let's say we zoomed out of the planet and you're and and things were going at a speed uh, we're doing a playback our planet would look like it was on fire and and full of floods with the amount of these things that are happening but like like we've been saying i think it's 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 more helpful to to be positive it's let's think of nature as our frontline fight uh let's Let's remember that that's the most immediate thing that we can see, the most important thing that represents 25 gigatons of carbon. That's like, that's the best thing we can do to buy us time on climate. And listen, if we were had a great, great strategy, strategy on old growth, it, it goes to exactly what we're talking about right now with, with wildfires. It's uh, the flooding. If we left, if we left trees in place, a lot of places that were flooding, we, we create towns and cities in floodplains. Mm. <laughs> like this is like, this is stuff that uh, we need to start to work with nature as opposed to try to dominate it because it's not not working. 100%, man. Well, Dax, thank you so much for coming. I, I was really looking forward to this one. Totally met all the expectations as well. Thank you. I look yeah, forward great. to I, I look forward to seeing all the documentaries you're bringing out. We'll put your book, Age of Union. That link will be in the description. We'll also put the links to your Instagram, at Dax De Silva and at Age of, Age of Union, I think, yeah, on Instagram as well. But people can follow along with what you're doing there and i would love to i'd love to eventually do a podcast with you and paul yeah that'd be really really cool yeah, that's great maybe next year do something like that when we're up north there but Perfect. Uh, thank you so much for Thanks, coming and, and uh and really enjoyed this you too all right everybody Thanks. else you know what it is give it a thought get back to me peace